this is a very important surah in Qur'an al-Kareem. There are a lot of very important and noteworthy lessons to be learned from this surah. This surah was revealed in Medina Manawara, and now pretty much mostly we're entering now a series of Madani surahs. And this surah is going to be mentioning three major events. The first is known as the Battle of Ahzab. Ahzab means the Confederates, the different forces and factions. Ahzab is the plural of Hizb, Ahzab. This is going, what you more properly know as Battle of the Khandak. Khandak means trench, uh, and this is going to be referred to in detail here. And I'll explain that background. The second major incident is the marriage between Sayyidina Rasulullah and Ummu Mu'mineen Sayyidatina Zainab bin Tijash radiallahu ta'ala anha and how she was previously married to Sayyidina Zayd ibn Haritha radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And third aspect is going to be a discussion with the Ummahatul Mu'mineen or the wives of Nabi Karim sallallahu alayhi wa And the fourth major thing that's going to come is that Nabi Karim sallallahu alayhi wa that he is the last and final messenger and prophet of Allah sallallahu in every single sense of that word. So in the fifth year of Hijrah, fifth year after Hijrah, the Quraysh of Makkah and other tribes from surrounding areas decided to converge on Madinah Manawara in yet another battle. And this battle therefore is known as Battle of Ahzab because many tribes joined. It was, you can say, like today we would say coalition forces, a coalition army came to fight Nabi Karim Wasallam. Now what happened was is that certain uh, when Nabi Karim Sassam realized that this was going to happen, uh, then Sayyidah Salman al-Farsi gave the advice that a large trench should be dug in almost an arc. It wasn't surrounding all the Madinah Manara, but it wasn't just a line either. It was an arc basically around it would be very difficult to get. And there were some places which were mountainous hills, large rocks and boulders where you did not even need to build the trench. There were gaps along the way where there were natural impediments there. Now, when this surah was initially revealed, this, this initial ayat of the surah, okay, oh, oh my beloved, O oh, Nabi Karim Sallallahu you should fear Allah Subhanahu Wa and you should not follow the disbelievers nor the hypocrites. Indeed, Allah Subhanahu is all-knowing and all-wise. Rather, instead you should follow that which has been revealed to you from your Rabb. Indeed, Allah Subhanahu Wa knows each and every is all aware and all informed about each and everything that you do. But to Allah that you should rely on Allah Subhanahu wa Taala alone. Makafa billahi bakila and Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is sufficient as a helper. So it means here la tutea. It doesn't mean obey because the Prophet would never obey them. But it means that don't even don't pay them any heed. Don't even listen to them. Don't even listen to their advice, their counsel, their offers. Disregard them altogether. That, okay? Disregard them altogether. 
what happened that there was certain mushrikeen like Walid and others, they came to Sayyidina Rasulullah and they told him, they went to Medina Manawra and they said that look if you leave your faith, we will give you half of your wealth. And many times different mushrikeen of Makkah Makarama, they tried to convince Sayyidina Rasulullah to leave their, leave the deen of Islam for the sake of money or wealth or status or power. Then secondly, the Munafiqeen of Medina Manawra and the Jews of Medina Manawra threatened to kill the Prophet if he didn't leave teaching the deen of Islam. So all of these things were happening, these armies were amassing, there was a lot of opposition inside, outside, ethnic Adab, Mushrikeen, Jews of Medina, from Makkah, Makkah, surrounding tribes. So then Allah Ta'ala then revealed these verses that don't fear Allah Ta'ala alone. Don't pay any heed and listen whatsoever to what the disbelievers and the monophics are saying. Indeed, Allah Ta'ala is all-knowing, all-wise. He knows every, he's, their tricks and their plans and their plots and their schemes. Allah Ta'ala knows about them. His wisdom will prevail. Instead, follow what Allah Ta'ala has revealed upon you. And Allah Ta'ala is completely aware of what will befall you. Trust and rely on Allah Ta'ala alone. This is also a notion that the Sahaba Ikram had no Ahzab, they had no Hizb, they had no allies, factions with them. Every single one was now uniting against them and the deen of Islam was alone. Why is this being mentioned? Because initially Sayyidina Rasulullah had made peace treaties and in some cases what we would call mutual defense pacts. For example, with the Jews of Medina that's coming, right? And other tribes, but none of those tribes now we're going to come to the aid of the Prophet ﷺ. And Allah SWT means by this that yes, it was your hikmah and your wisdom that you engage in these peace treaties and pacts, but know that you should have tawakkal on Allah Ta'ala alone. Don't count on any of these people who you have made pacts with to come to your defense, because in fact, as we will see, none of them are going to come to the defense of the mu'mini. مَا جَعَلَ اللَّهُ لِذَجْرٍ مِنْ قَلْبِنِ فِي جَوْفِ This is a well-off-recited ayah of Qur'an. It means that Allah SWT has not placed two qulub, has not placed two spiritual hearts in the chest of any human being. What does this mean? So the first way Allah Ta'ala is using this is that just as Allah Ta'ala has never made such a thing, just like such a thing is absolutely impossible, as false as such a concept could be that anyone has had two wives, Equally false is the following: That Allah Taala has not made your wives with whom you practice this thing called the har, which I'll explain in a moment. Allah Subhanahu has not made any one of them your mothers. So in pre-Islamic Arabia, there was a practice known as the har. The har comes from zahar, which means the back. So a man would say to his wife that you are to me like the back of my mother means you were like my mother. means that you were like my mother, you are no longer my wife, you are haram to me, in that sense, right, in the cohabitational sense, as my mother is. So this was a, a way that people used to issue divorce to one another. So here Allah SWT is issuing a ruling here, that no, uh, that if you say that, that your wife isn't divorced. And that ruling is up till, uh, is the case today. Your wife will not be forbidden to you, as your mother is, but you will be punished for saying this. You will have to pay what we call a kafara, kafara to zihar. Kafara means some type of monetary penalty. This is going to come in detail in Surah Majadal, Surah 58, where the kafara is mentioned. But you will have to pay some penalty, expiation, or feed so many people, or free a slave. Something you'll have to do to lift that statement of yours of zihar, but it does not constitute a divorce. 
right? Okay, so that was the initial thing that Allah SWT saying is as impossible as it is that you have two hearts in your breast, it is as impossible that those women who you're married to could become like your mothers. And equally, it is also impossible. وَمَا جَعَلَ أَدْيَاءَكُمْ أَبْنَاءَكُمْ ذَلَكُمْ كُولَكُمْ بِأَفْوَاهِهِمْ أَفْوَاهِكُمْ وَاللَّهُ يَكُولُ الْحَقَّ وَهُوَ يَهْدِ السَّبِيلُ And similarly, Allah Ta'ala has not made your adopted sons like your own real sons. So another thing is that if you adopt a person, a child, and you make them your child, they can never be like your real children. And specifically, an adopted, your adoptees can never be your sons. These are your own expressions. This is merely a sta- literally, this is merely a statement from your own lips. It means these are your own expressions. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He speaks with absolute truth. And He guides to the straight path. This was referring to a second thing that in the time of the, in pre-Islamic Arabia, people when they adopted a child, they viewed that child to be like their own son. So much so that they would share an inheritance Right, And so this was a common practice and they also, one important ruling of that, which is going to come later, is that they believed it was haram that if their adopted son ever married a woman and then their adopted son divorced that woman, they viewed it haram for them to ever marry that woman. Because that is the case with a real son. If anybody's son marries a woman, you can never ever marry the wife of your son. Your son might divorce her, your son might pass away. You can never marry the wife of your son. Right? So they were treating the adopted son like the real son. So this is again something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is refuting by saying that no, an adopted child cannot be regarded as a real child because they are not. And then last, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, in verse number 5 that you should call upon them using the names of your, their fathers who aqsatu in the law that this is more just in the sight of Allah subhanahu so this has to do with uh, naming so this was why because the adopted son of the Prophet was Sayyidina Zayd people were calling him Zayd ibn Muhammad but actually no he should be known as Zayd ibn Haritha because his real biological father is known and he should be known by his biological father right <coughs> This a small thing about naming, so sometimes people ask this question about women. So there is no hard and fast rule about this when a woman gets married. The Sharia has not prohibited any of the conventions. Some women retain their maiden name, some women adopt the last name of their husband, some women adopt the first name of her husband. But there is a sense here that in the deen that if a woman's last name is the first name of her father, so let's say there's a woman, Fatima, and her father's name is Qasim, and so she used to write her name as Fatima Qasim. And then if she gets married, right, and so her, let's say her husband's name is Ali, she shouldn't call herself Fatima Ali. If she does, it's not wrong, right, but she should re- retain her father's name if that's how she was known, so she would be Fatima Qasim. If she wants to indicate that she is married, there's no precedent of that in the Islamic tradition. That doesn't mean it's prohibited, but there's no example of that in Islamic tradition. All of the Muslim women continued to be known as for example, Aisha binti Abi Bakr, right? Radiallahu ta'ala anha, as so-and-so, daughter of so-and-so, because there was no concept of last names. In contemporary times, last name is normally the family name, which is used to identify that members are of the same family. So for that reason, then, a woman could today adopt the last name of her husband. So let's say, 
the last name of the husband was Ahmad, right? So before she was known as Fatima Qasim, and now her husband's name is Ali Ahmad, right? So she can take her name as Fatima Qasim Ahmad. That would be the most preferred route that she retain her father's name and she add to it the family name of her husband. But that said, all the other ways are permissible if she changes her name to Fatima Ali, Fatima Ahmad, Fatima Qasim Ali, Fatima Qasim Ahmad, Fatima Qasim Ali Ahmad, Fatima Qasim Ahmad Ali. None of those things are not allowed in Islam. But if somebody wants to see, is there, so that's the guidance that retain the father's name. And if you want to adopt something that identifies you as a member of family, for documentation, legality, everybody's last name and the passport should be the same. It makes sometimes traveling and visas and many other things in life easier. So that can be done. Alright? So continuing verse number 5. So call them after their, you know, call them after their father's name. This is more just in the sight of your rub. But if you don't know their fathers, then they are your brothers in deen. Hum ikhwanukum deen. Then you are brothers in deen. mawalikum and they are your mawali. Brothers in deen mean okay. Then just call them by first name. Then it's okay. You just call them by first name. Second, mawalikum. Mawalikum means that they are your friends. Mawali is plural of mola. This I've ex- explained to you that was coming in the Quran that the use of the word Mola has been used for Allah Ta'ala Anta Mawlana Funtsurnaakum Al-Kafirin and Mola has also been used for Ghairullah in Quran Mawali is plural of Mola Mola means your friend, your benefactor, your patron, your intimate friend So you can call an adopted son your Mola because that is the nature of adoption and I also took an Islamic law if a person frees a slave then the freed slave and the one who freed them they can both be called Mola and this is why sometimes people used to call religious scholars, particularly they started in the late Arab, early Persian tradition, Molana. It meant that you are like a Mola to us. It didn't mean you are like a god to us. It means just like somebody who has freed a slave, they are known as Mola in Islamic law. So we were a slave to our nafs, and your teachings freed us from that, so you were a Mola to us. So the Quran establishes because some people who, you know, maybe make a few many too many trips to Jeddah and Riyadh and not enough to Makkah and Medina, they seem to think that all of their deen lies in this, that to say the word Mulana is haram. No, to say the word Mulana for a man or a scholar is 100% jayz, and this is the Quranic proof for it. If a person is not comfortable, doesn't like it, no problem, you don't have to say that word, but to say that the use of that word is haram, that is disproved by this ayah in Quran. And there is no blame on you with regard to them if you made a mistake or made an error or this. It is a matter of what your hearts intend. This also has to be explained. It is based on going to what was the amad, what was the intention of your hearts. Indeed, Allah SWT is all forgiving and Allah SWT is all merciful. Alright. First of all, that general ruling when Allah Ta'ala told Nabi Yusuf, it applies to us till this day. What does that mean? That do not obey or consult when it comes to matters of your deen. 
unbelievers, but when it comes to non-deen matters, whether that is technology, whether that is economy, whether there's other fears of learning, that it is permissible to engage and discuss and consultation. But when it comes to your deen, you have to take your understanding from deen from Muslimin. Why do I say this? Because some young Muslims who go to universities abroad and who are not given proper education in Islam by their parents, then they take their understanding from deen from a course they take at a university with a non-Muslim professor. And that is totally incorrect. Our understanding of deen has to come from the books of deen, the scholars of deen, the people of deen. Uh, But certainly we can take other understandings other than our deen from people who are following paths other than our deen. Now this ayah, however, has a much more general connotation. That Allah SWT does not place two hearts with any person's chest. What does that mean? That you cannot be two-faced. You cannot have Iman and Kufr. You cannot have Shak and have Yaqeen. You cannot really have Taqwa and Fisk. You cannot have love for dunya and love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all of this is a type of nifaq. And by using this word Qalb, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about a person's emotions. That you cannot have duplicitous emotions. No human being is capable of that. If you have Shak, it means you don't have Yaqeen. If you have Kufr, it means you don't have Iman. Right? If you don't love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it means that you don't love Him. So a person should be very careful about their emotions. The gulb is the seat of our emotions and our emotional perceptions, not the physical heart. Right? Then the other thing that is mentioned here uh, is that what your, uh, yeah, your mistakes will not be. So this is referred to mistakes that you made in the past. There should be no blame on you regardless of the mistakes that you make in the past. You'll only be punished for those that your hearts purposely intended. So those things that you knew and deliberated to be sin. This is referring to before Quran comes down. It doesn't refer to any one of us. Because Quran, entire Quran exists. And we were responsible when we attained the age of maturity to learn Quran and live our life according to Quran. Like even in secular law, ignorance is not an excuse under the law. This is talking about the Sahaba Quran live as the revelation is being revealed. If somebody was doing something prior to revelation being revealed about that, then they are not to blame unless they had a malicious intent in doing that. And obviously Sahaba Ikram who called Sayyidina Zayd, Sayyidina Zayd ibn Muhammad, they had no malicious intent in that, and nor had any rule come to them that they shouldn't call upon him with that name. And the second this came, then the Sahaba Ikram stopped calling him Zayd ibn Muhammad. Then a couple of other incidental rules about adopted children. Okay, The first thing is that an adopted child will always be considered as the relative of their biological parents. And this also governs issues of inheritance. So it means adopted son or daughter is not given a share in inheritance. That said, those who are not stipulated shares in Islam, a person can always leave a wasiyah, it's according to Islamic law of inheritance, you can bequeath, leave a bequest up to one-third of your state to a non-designated heir. So the adopted son is a non-designated heir, a person could bequeath them up to one-third of their wealth and assets, but they won't be counted as a son or a daughter when the inheritance is being calculated. The other thing is that because adopted children are not real biological children, so all of the rules of hijab and gender interaction will apply. You cannot say that no, you beti ki This is exactly, actually this whole verse basically is saying ki ye beti ki Don't say beti ki That's actually what Allah is saying in Quran. 
don't say this sentence that people like to say in Urdu. If somebody wants you to adopt a child, then the way to create the relationship of hurma, the way to create a prohibition of marriage, to lift the laws of hijab, is through a process called rada. Rada means that a woman who is not the mother of the child can wet nurse the child. Now, if somebody adopted a child because their wife, the mother, is not able to have children, so that mother who is not able to conceive, then physiologically, except in very rare circumstances, physiologically she will not lactate, she will not produce her own milk. So she cannot become the wet nursing mother of the baby herself. So what has to happen then? So if it is a boy, right, boy who is being adopted, then you should adopt a boy, a woman should adopt a boy at such time that she has a sister and the sister has the baby between 0 and 2 years of age, means the sister is producing milk. And then that adopted baby should be made to drink the milk of the woman's sister. Now the foster mother becomes the khala and there is no further between a boy and her khala. So this would be away. And this, you have to do this. You shouldn't think that it's mikyatakal of kikyazurathalatalamafkarnawalim. No, that's not the way. That's not the attitude you take towards deen. And when, especially when Allah Ta'ala has given you away, why do you call that the kullaf? And Allah Ta'ala has given you away to do things within the realm of halal. So this is something that you have to do. And similarly, if it's a girl that's being adopted, so a girl doesn't observe hijab from a woman, so now the issue is the foster father. Right? So in that case, then the foster father, if he has a sister who is nursing, her own child, and then this adopted daughter also gets wet nursed by that woman. Now this foster father will become her mamu, and there is no hijab in front of a mamu. So when people want to adopt, it's preferred in deen of Islam, that they adopt a baby in the years of wet nursing from zero to two, right? So that this amal can take place, and they do it at such a time when one of their, either the man's foster father's sister or foster mother's sister is wet nursing, so the Nisbat of hurma can take place. If this is not done, then when that adopted son or daughter reaches maturity, they will have to observe hijab from their foster father or foster mother. Because again, no matter how much love and affection they were given, the adopted child is not viewed as a biological child in the deen of Islam. Alright. Similarly, what the ulama have taken from this is like, just like it's not permissible to call your own adopted son as your son, so you should not call other people's children as This is not what Allah wants, right? Uh, I sometimes explain simply that just just Allah has given a list of who are the people upon whom a woman can show her zinat. This has been mentioned in Surah Nur. And if you do not fall in that category, even if it's your very, very, very best friend from childhood, it's his daughter, Allah Ta'ala in Quran has not put you in that category where your best friend's daughter cannot show you her zinat. She has to observe hijab in front of you. It doesn't mean that you have to confess to being lewd and sinister. No, you may be pure of intention, but the law is the law. And Allah subhanahu law applies to you if you want to be a believer in Him. Having Iman in Him means you have Iman in Qur'an. means every single ayah of Qur'an will have to govern you. Alright. Verse number 6. Yes, I'd even mention to you a hadith in Abu Dawood that Sayyidina Abu Dawood said, 
that Allah Ta'ala disassociates himself, Allah Ta'ala distances himself from that woman who includes a child within her family that does not belong to it, Allah Ta'ala will never admit her into his Jannah. So it's not talking about adoption, but this is treating a non-biological and then non-wet nurse child as one's own child and removing hijab. So in hadith also, Nabi Yaktima has confirmed the meaning of this ayah. And Allah Ta'ala also, and he also mentions nothing which is important, Allah Ta'ala will distance a person from his mercy who denied being the father of his own child. So these are people who deny the paternity, right? And they've actually fathered the child, but now they reject their child. They Either they don't admit that that person is their child or they don't keep in any touch with their child. They've abandoned their child. This person will not get the mercy of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala on the Day of Judgment. And finally, then the Prophet Allah Ta'ala will degrace, disgrace such a man in the presence of all of humanity. Alright. Now Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says in the Quran another very important ayah. Many, many major ayahs come in Surah Al-Azam. Verse number 6. An-Nabiyu awla bil mu'minina min anfusihim. That the Prophet ﷺ takes precedence and priority over the believers than their own selves. It means that also Nabi Yaktim has a more intimate, closer relationship. He's closer to the believers than even their own selves. What does that mean? This Nabi. Not Quran, Nabi. So that means the Sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah ﷺ takes a greater priority for us than our own selves. So then a person can't talk about udhr and majburi because Allah Ta'ala is saying an-nabiyu awla, awla. He takes priority and precedence over the believers even than their own self. This is Quran Azim al-Sha'an. What does that mean? Because number one, Nabiya Karim is the naib. He's the prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he has more a right to our life, our wealth, our wishes, our desires because he is our prophet. He, we are in his community. That's what it means to take someone as your Nabi. To be part of the Ummati Nabi relationship means that you give that person who you believe to be a prophet precedence and priority over each and every of your own wishes and concerns and ideas. And the second meaning is that Nabi Yaksimah himself is more mukhlis to us than we are. He's more khaykha to us than we ourselves are. He is more sincere for us. His sunnah and seerah contains teachings that are more sincere for us than uh, we ourselves can be. And then the Prophet I'll do that in a moment. Third thing is that Nabi Karim sallam has more right over us because the rub between this and the previous ayah is just like the son should be known by their biological father as opposed to their adopted or foster father. Here, Allah subhanahu wa says that the Nabi has precedence for us over than our biological father. Because our biological father is who gave us jismani wujud, physical creation, and Nabi Akrim Sassam is the one who his teachings have, will bring us a ruhani wujud in the akhirah. So in many senses, this ayah is mean that Nabiya Karim Salam takes precedence over us. And we should have that feeling in our life that whatever the Prophet says is more important to us than anything we would ever think of. Right? I'll give you an example also of Nabiya Karim Salam's love for the Mu'mineen. And his compassion for Munin. In one of these, Sayyidina Abu Hurairah narrates that Sayyidina Rasul once made dua to Allah Ta'ala that, Oh Allah, I request from you. And I, to request, I believe that you will grant that I'm but a human. And therefore, if I ever hurt any believer of mine, or I ever swore upon him, or I last against him, then convert this into a mercy for him and a means of his purification through which he may attain your qurb on the day of judgment. 
So this is the level of compassion of Nabi Akram Although he never did anything wrong to any of his sahaba and certainly never to any one of us of his ummah, but this is the way he made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we should make the same dua, sunnah dua, about our own family, our friends, our associates, our fellow believers, that we are but human if we ever made a mistake and hurt anyone, that we ask Allah Ta'ala to convert that hurt into a mercy for them and to make it a sabab and a means for that person getting their qurb. Another hadith in Sahih Muslim, Sayyidina Rasulullah said, and he mentioned this, uh, he's going to recite this ayah. And what was that? That when, after the mu'mineen had attained some futuhat, then once the Bhagavad addressed the mu'mineen reciting this ayah, that I have a greater relationship with the believers than their own selves. And then he said, if any mu'min dies without settling his debt, then I, Nabi Karim shall assume the responsibility for settling it. Allah Akbar. He took the responsibility of the debts of all of his Sahaba Ikram. And another reason, Sahih Muslim, Sayyidina Rasulullah, to show you how much compassion he had for the Mu'mineen, is that Sayyidina Rasulullah said that all of the Anbiya are granted one special dua that is guaranteed, Allah Ta'ala says that he will accept them. All the other Anbiya made use of that dua in this world, but Sayyidina Rasulullah reserved his dua for the Akhirah when he will use it to intercede and plead on behalf of his Ummah to get the mercy and forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is also hadith in Sahih Muslim. So it shows how much concern Nabi Akrim Sassam has for the Mu'mineen and we should also have equal concern, try to match his concern for us by having concern with living a life that is true to his teachings, his legacy, his hayat tayyibah, his sirat mubarakah and his sunnat al Next thing Allah Ta'ala mentions here about the Prophet and the wives of the Prophet ﷺ are their mothers, and are the mothers of the believers. It is from here that we get the notion of Ummahat and Mu'minin. So again, Allah Ta'ala was mentioning that although normally a foster mother, adopted son is not like the real mother, but when it comes to spiritual relationship, not foster parents, but spiritually, all of the Azwaj Mutaharat or Ummahat and Mu'minin, they are mothers of the believers. They are mothers of the believers. This shows the Sha'an of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. So those certain sects who have this distorted and twisted view that only Ummu Mu'mineen Khadija is a Mu'mina and they actually write in all of their classical texts whether a certain secular member of them today in Pakistan may not know that or confess that or profess that but every single classical text of that sectarian theology says that every Ummu Mu'mineen except Ummu Khadija is an unbeliever. So how can they be mothers of the believers when they themselves are not believers? Right? So you have to have the courage to call things that are twisted deviation precisely that what they are. And no doubt anybody who believes that any even single wife of the Prophet is an unbeliever, it means they have disbelieved this ayah of Quran and by their own act of disbelieving in Quran and their own act of declaring a believer to be an unbeliever, that itself is tantamount to their own kufr, their own disbelief. Then Allah SWT says in Quran, The next ayah is about inheritance. Alright? وَأُولُوا الْرَحَامِ بَعْضُهُمْ أَوْلَى بِبَعْضٍ فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُهَاجِرِينَ إِلَّا أَن تَفْعَلُوا إِلَىٰ Okay. What this means is that in 
literally it says in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it means in the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In Allah ta'ala's decree and laws concerning inheritance, then their blood relations, in that sense, they are closer to one another in terms of the right to inheritance and to be a lawful heir than one's fellow believers and then the muhajireen and, their, and then the muhajir, then the migrants who migrated for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. unless antafalu ila awliya'ukum ma'rufa, unless you want to do a ihsan and a good deed towards your friends, Indeed, this has been documented and written in the divine decree. Alright. What does this mean? So the Mu'mineen here is originally here is referring to the Ansar. What happened was in the earlier phase of Islam, when the Biyakim moved to the Hijra from Makkah to Madinah Manara, he paired one Muhajir with one Ansar known as Nusbat Muakhat. He made bonds and pairs. So one Muhajir became the brother of one particular Ansar. And initially, this was such a strong bond that the Prophet said that they will even inherit from one another as a brother inherits if one of his brother deceases. This ayah is now, and another ayah also, the last ayah of Surah Anfal, abrogate this practice and makes it clear that no, now from now on people will only share inheritance of their biological heirs, even if they were made spiritual brethren in this nisbat muachad during hijrah, they will not share in inheritance. However, what they can do is they can do something good, ma'roof, they can give a gift, or which means they can give a karz hasana, they can give sadaqah, they can give a hadiyah, or in their wasiyah, they can bequest and bequeath up to one-third to that non-designated heir. And again here by book, I mentioned to you, yes, one sense is the book means lahul mahfuz, that this is part of the eternal knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is re- revealed piecemeal in Quran, and that simply speaking, because it's a very detailed topic, but the concept of abrogation, the simplest way to understand that is nothing is really abrogated because it exists in the eternal knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but because that knowledge was revealed piecemeal over 23 years, then outwardly apparently certain things get changed and get abrogated, and so some have taken this ayah to be referring to that, and secondly I told you that another view is that this ayah simply means to Allah Ta'ala's decree and means here that in terms of the inheritance laws that have been decreed by Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. Verse number 7 And remember that time when we took the covenant, the mithaq from the Prophets and then remember when we took it from you, Nabi Kareem Sallallahu So this is an incident that has been mentioned uh, and this ends in min wa Ibrahim wa Musa wa Isa ibn Maryam that we took it from you, we took it from Nur Islam, Ibrahim Islam, Musa Islam, Sayyidi Isa Islam, Indeed we took a very intense, solemn Ghaliza can also mean inviolable, impenetrable, solemn and inviolable covenant from them. Right. First, Nabi Yaqarim is mentioned here, Minka, so this is clearly not chronological order in terms of this world. Answer to that is yes, it is chronological order, because the very first thing Allah subhanahu wa made was the nur of Nabi Yaqarim And one hadith the Prophet said, one sahaba asked the Prophet, when did you first become a Nabi? So he said, I was a Nabi when Adam was still between Ru and Jism. This is in Sunnah Al-Tirmidhi. Means I was bestowed nabuwa when my rule was created by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and then the izhar of that nabuwa came when in this earth when the Prophet was forty years old. 
Second reason why the Prophet has come first is also in terms of Rutbah and Martaba that the Prophet Nabuwa is greatest because he's Nabi of the Anbiya. So when his covenant of Nabuwa was taken from him, he was also Prophet for all of the other Prophets. Then these other names, because you can see some names are mentioned here, some aren't. These names are what are referred to, Allah Ta'ala is referred to elsewhere as the Ulul Azm Anbiya. Ulul Azm means that those who have been given an Azm, means they have been given their own Kitab and scripture and also a complete Sharia. So these are the major prophets, Sayyidina Nuh Alayhi Salaam, Ibrahim Alayhi Salaam, Musa Alayhi Salaam and Isa Alayhi Salaam. Alright? Uh, and what is that? inviolable solemn covenant so that is coming that is to follow the wahi to preach to do da'wah of that wahi to have istikama to have sabr and to be steadfast when afflicted with trials and enmity and hostility from the disbelievers that they have been sent to verse number 8 and Allah Ta'ala mentions another ayah which has been one of the most moving ayahs in Quran al-Kareem لَيَسْأَلَ الصَّادِقِينَ أَنْ صِدْكِهِمْ so that Allah Ta'ala might ask the sadiqeen about their sidq Many of the early Muslims used to recite this ayah all night and cry and say on the Day of Judgment, not only would the sinners be asked about their sins, but even the people who Allah Ta'ala Quran is calling the Sadiqeen, they will be asked about their sidq. They will be interrogated about the virtues that they used to do. They will be interrogated about the righteousness they had. So imagine that Day of Judgment when the Sadiqeen are interrogated about their Siddiq, then imagine what will be the state of the sinner who will be interrogated about their sins. What does it mean? So first meaning is precisely that. Allah Ta'ala will show His might and majesty and that everybody has to go through Hisab for all of their Amal. Even the Sadiqeen will go through Hisab for their Siddiq. Second is that in the process of interrogating them, their Siddiq will be manifested, will be made Zahir. So Allah Ta'ala wants to show the people in the Day of Judgment that look, you said you couldn't do it or following Islam is too difficult. Look in your own time, in your own age, in your own city, from your own class, there were people who were Sadiqeen. Now watch as I take their hisab and you will see that people even in your day and age were able to engage in virtue and piety. So to present it as a hujjah to the sinner, to present it as a hujjah or dalil or as a proof to the sinners or to the disbelievers. And what does it mean? Sidkihim, so first, utmost, it means liyas al-sadiqin, it means the anbiya will be questioned first about their nabuwa and how true they were to this mithaq, to this covenant that they had taken. As far as the disbelievers, wa'adda the kafirina, adab and alima, and indeed Allah Ta'ala has prepared for the disbelievers an extremely painful punishment, an extremely painful torment. This concept of mithaq I've mentioned to you several times in different talks and the Muslim Imam Ahmad has long hadith about how people will go to their Nabi and they will a different uh, yet another hadith of Muslim Ahmad that and the people will deny. So the hadith begins, it starts again here like the Quran starts with Sayyidina Nuh Islam. And they will claim that our Nabi did not deliver the message to us. That's what they'll say on the Day of Judgment. Because they're so frantically trying to escape the punishment, right? So then Allah Ta'ala will ask Sayyidina Salam, and the Biyakir said that Sayyidina Salam will be asked, did you deliver the message? He said, yes, I did. He says, well, your community is saying you didn't, so who do you call as witness? And Sayyidina Salam will call Sayyidina Rasulullah, he saw some, and this Ummah as a witness. 
And then people ask the question, well, how will this Ummah testify to say that Nuh Islam delivered the message? Because we ourselves were not living at that time. How the Ummah will testify is because they have yaqeen in Quran and yaqeen in what the Prophet told them. So the Ummah will simply say, Allah told us, Allah, you told us in our Quran and our Nabi told us in Hadith that Nuh Islam delivered the message and you were truthful and your Prophet is truthful. That's why we can say with yaqeen that he did deliver the message. And then this will happen for every Prophet successively these same names that are mentioned in Quran and you did also in Surah Maida some time ago that this is the day when the Sidq of the Salikin will profit them Surah Maida Surah 5 verse 119 right and that is also that is the other aspect of this verse right but even those Salihin who knew that that on the one hand Allah Ta'ala said for the Sadiqin their Sidq will benefit them still when they used to read this verse Allah Ta'ala will question the Sadiqin about this Sidq they would tremble and cry in the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now verse 9 onwards we come to the major event uh, which is the reason, the reason behind the naming of this verse which is the battle of Ahzal. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu dhkuru ni'matallahi alaykum id ja'atkum junoodun farsalna alayhim rihaun wa junoodan lam tarawha wa kana allahu bima ta'maluna basira that all you who believe, remember and recollect the great tremendous favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he sent upon you when junood, when armies had amassed and came upon you and then we sent a wind against them and we sent junood and we sent forces against them that you were not able to see, this refers to the angels and indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was all aware about each and everything that you do however, that when they came upon you and approached you from above وَمِنْ أَسْفَلِ مِنْكُمْ And they came and approached you from below. Then what happened? وَإِذَا زَاغَتِ الْأَبْصَارِ That your eyes were bewildered. That's what it means. Your eyes were dimmed and bewildered. Your vision was dimmed because you were bewildered at the mass numbers of them. وَبَلَغَتِ الْقُلُوبُ And then وَبَلَغَتِ الْقُلُوبُ الْحَنَاجِرَ And literally it means in the throats uh, and your hearts were in your throats. Your hearts reached your throats. It's an expression that you were so bewildered when this massive army of different confederates and factions and coalitions amassed against you and were trying to come at you from all types of places. And then, what And then each one then imagines certain conceptions or harbors certain thoughts about Allah subhanahu wa and on that occasion the believers were indeed tried. They were tried. And and they were shaken by a tremendous shock. Means it's a great test Allah Ta'ala put on the believers. Alright. Now this detail, uh, you know, I will do it a little bit briefly, but this is something that really uh, another thing that you have to learn is Sirah which is the life of the Prophet and Sahaba and what happened in those 23 years of his Nabuwa and very important also because many non-Muslims or many, you know, atheistized or agnosticized or uncontrollably secularized Muslims use some of these stories to cast aspersions on the Prophet So you have to know these things in detail. Why were those Jews killed from that fortress? What happened? What's the whole story? Instead of just getting one piece of the story. So this battle took place in the fifth year after Hijra. You may remember, I'd explained to you earlier in in the course of one surah as well, that when Nabi Yaqis, first of all, Sayyidina Rasulullah, when he was in Makkah Mukarramah in the Sahaba, 
never ever did they use force or aggression or violence to even defend themselves against the persecution and prosecution of the kuffar of Makkah. That was the way Allah Ta'ala revealed to them. Then when they migrated to Medina Manawra, their only intention was to live in a peaceful society in Medina Manawra. But then the unbelievers of Makkah started sending armies, Badr and Uhud and so many others in this one, right? At that point we did this for you a few days ago, Allah Ta'ala revealed that now you may defend yourself. Defend yourself through military means. Okay. But what was the first thing that the Prophet did when he came to Medina Manawra? This is what I had mentioned to you before. That in Makkah Makarama you learn from the seerah how to live as a minority. Which means you cannot. So Muslims who say in England we're going to enforce Sharia in England. That's stupid. You cannot enforce Sharia in England. Because England is not a Muslim majority country. Right? So you'll have to behave in England the way the Muslims behaved as a minority in Makkah Makarama. When the Muslims move to Medina Manawra, then you get the phenomenon we call a majority. And not even majority, we call absolute. Because every single person from the Aus and Khazraj, these two tribes, they accepted Islam. Yes, there were some who were Munafikin, but that wasn't known. So outwardly you have an absolute majority. Then there were some non-Muslims who were the Jews of Medina. So what did Nabi Yaqdam do? To get a complete consensus in society, he made treaties with the three major Jewish tribes, Banu Qureza, Banu Nadir, and Banu Qaynuka. And then after these documented, historically documented peace, treaties, and pacts, now you have a unanimous consent created in that society where you can live in peace. After that, however, the Mushrikeen of Makkah kept sending their armies. The Munafikeen of inside Medina Manawra kept serving as double agents for those unbelievers. And the Jews of Medina, one by one, each of these three tribes themselves, unilaterally broke the terms of the peace treaty that they had agreed with the Prophet ﷺ, and they broke it in order to try to kill the Prophet ﷺ and all of the Sahaba. And yes, sometimes the punishment for attempted murder and homicide is capital punishment. And sometimes the punishment for between nations when a nation violates a treaty to such an extent that you're going to see that they did is also uh, a, a terrible punishment. So first, what happened to the Banu Nadir? Just to refresh your memory. Banu Nadir once summoned Sayyidina Rasulullah They asked the Prophet to come and adjudicate between them a case of murder. But actually this was just a ploy. They were planning to assassinate the Prophet that on the path they were going to drop a big boulder on the Prophet and crush him. Allah Ta'ala revealed this to the Prophet and then the Prophet decided not to go. And then he sent his message to the Banu Nadir that I know this was your plot. Now the Bani Nazir should have all accepted Iman at that moment because he really, he really is a prophet of Allah. Allah was telling him, but they didn't. At that case, the Prophet ﷺ, the punishment he gave them was expulsion. He said, you have to leave Medina now. And they did. And they left. And where did they go, by the way? Uh, some of them settled in Khaybar. And some of them went to Sham. <laughs> Sham refers to the whole place today, Jordan, Palestine, Syria. So then yes, those original Jews from 1948 when the British imposed the mandate and established the state of Israel and they said there were some Jews there. Yes, there were some Jews living there before. And quite possibly they were the descendants of the same Banu Nadir. Right? But this was the first punishment and the punishment is going to go up each time. Each tribe is going to get a successively more stern punishment. But the point is they could have received an ibrat from this. So the first punishment for the first Jewish tribe was expulsion. Expulsion. That, if you look at it technically, is a very light punishment when somebody tries to attempt to murder you uh, and, and also violates the treaty. So, 
first thing that happened was that when the Banu Nadir were told to leave, the Munafikin and particularly uh, the Munafikin and Madi Manara tried to go to the Jews and say, don't leave and we'll give you our support, right? Uh, and they pledged their support to them and they said that, no, if, you know, if you, you should help us and we'll resist and we'll fight. So then when the Banu Nadir did not follow the command of the Prophet when he said, you're expelled and you leave, then the Prophet went with the Sahaba to their settlement. And what the Jews had made were some very fortified fortresses. And they were had locked themselves in their fortress. Uh, Alright. And the Jews inside their fortress, they were thinking that the Mushrikin of Makkah Makkah had promised them that if you don't leave, we will come to your assistance. So they were waiting, thinking that the Mushrikin of Medina, sorry, Medina, not Makkah, not Mushrikin, Munafikin, they had been told by the Munafikin of Medina that don't leave your fortress, we will help you. So they stayed in the fortress and they were waiting to hear news that the Munafikin of Medina are fighting the Muslims of Medina, but that never happened. So then they sent a messenger to the Prophet saying, okay, we're sorry we didn't leave when you told us, can you let us leave now? And now even though the Prophet had come and brought the army of Sahaba and were engaged in the siege of that fortress, he said, okay, fine, he let them leave. So then they left. And they left and he gave them permission to take all their possessions, all their camels, even all their weapons with them. Even let them take all their weapons with them. Now if a criminal comes out, at least he has to leave his gun and come out with his hands up, right? The Prophet even let them take all their weapons with them. And so this, like I said, some of them settled in Khaybar and later you're going to come out, you're going to deal with them again later in the Battle of Khaybar. But then some of them then settled in Sham. Here, then the other two tribes of Jews, which were still in Medina Manawara, they still attempted to harass the Muslims. What did they do? They went to Makkah Makarramah. And they went to the Mushrikeen of Makkah Makarramah and they said, Look, what you should do is we pledge our assistance to you. Once and all, we should join forces. So we, these two remaining tribes, and especially the Manu Qureza, and you, the Mushrikeen of Makkah, you should all come and we should fight the Prophet So the Quraysh were very happy. And remember, I told you that they had a lot of respect for these Jews. And therefore the Jewish leader uh, secured the support of other neighboring tribes around Makkah as well. And this is how the Ahzab, these coalition forces were gathered together by the Banu Qureza. They are the prime instigators behind this whole battle. They get the Mushrikeen of Makkah on board, they get the tribes of Ghiftan on board, they get many other neighboring tribes as well. They created a coalition which the Mushrikeen of Makkah themselves could not even create. All right. When Sayyidina Rasulullah heard about this, right, because from messengers he heard, that's when then he sat down with Sahaba Ikram and then Sayyidina Salman al-Farsi because this was in the winter period. This was in a time when the Muslims were fairly poor. They were even suffering from hunger. So they weren't sure how are they going to be able to defend themselves in such a mass coalition force. So Sayyidina Salman al-Farsi then gave this idea to dig the trench. Many long accounts of Sira and how that trench was dung, and how Nabi Yaqsimah was in a state of hunger, and how there was a big boulder, and then the Sahaba couldn't break it, and they called the Nabi Yaqsimah to break it, and every time he hit the boulder, Allah Ta'ala showed him some future fatah, such as Rome and Persia, and etc. Many, many stories and details that one can do one day, inshallah, on a detailed Sira course. The army that came then was 12,000 strong. And when they saw the trench, they'd never seen anything like this before. And it was so wide that you couldn't cross it. By the time you came down, then through archers, you could pick off anybody who entered the trench. 
and the Muslim, the Sahaba Kram, there were 3,000. And they set up camp, so these two armies were facing one another. And yes, there were still volleys of archery, and volleys of arrows, and certain people, even some Sahaba Kram, few Sahaba Kram became shaheed during this battle because of those arrows. Now when Allah Ta'ala said that they came from above you, it's referring to the location of these tribes. So the Giftan came from above, from the easterly region. They come from below you. The Banu Kureza and the Jews were from within you. Means they came from all different places. The Banu Kanana, the Banu Tehama, all these different tribes. What does it mean you harbored, you different, uh, you conceived different thoughts about Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala? The Munafiqeen, their thoughts were now it's finished. And now Islam will be eradicated and now we will be free of having to play the charade of accepting Iman. And the Mu'mineen had yaqeen in Allah SWT that just like Allah Ta'ala helped us in Badr etc. Allah SWT will help us here. So this is what Allah Ta'ala means. It doesn't mean from within Mu'mineen there were people who harbored doubts. Or it's zan doesn't mean doubt but they had certain thoughts about Allah SWT. It means that the Munafiqeen had their thoughts and the Mu'mineen had their own thoughts. Okay, one mushrik, his name was Amr, just to tell you a couple of the stories from that battle. He was a person who was injured in the battle of Badr. And because of the injury, he couldn't come again against the Muslims. This is an unbeliever in the battle of Uhud. But he managed to show up for this one. And a lot of hatred for the believers. So he took his horse into the trench and he issued a challenge. Which was the way of classical warfare. That is there anyone, just one on one. This was also a challenge. So Sayyidina Ali wa he took permission from Sayyidina Rasulullah that I want to answer his challenge. And Allah uh, the Prophet gave him permission. When Sayyidina Ali was a young man, so when he came down, he identified himself. Uh, Amr asked him, that, identify who you are from, what clan are you from? So he said, I'm Ali ibn Abi Talib, I'm the son of Abu Talib. So Amr, uh, that Mushrik Amr told him that you are too young and I don't like to spill young blood. So Sayyidina Ali told him, but I would like to spill your blood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, but I would like to spill your blood. And so they engaged in battle and a lot of dust took place. But eventually they, at the end they heard Sayyidina Ali Gulanda exclaim, Allahu Akbar. And then all the Mu'mineen and Mushrikeen knew who had won that battle. And Sayyidina Ali Gulanda came out. Then the unbelievers asked the Prophet can you hand over his corpse to us? We'll give you 12,000 dinar. And the Prophet said, you can take his corpse for free. And he used a very interesting wording. He said that his corpse is foul and the money they wish to offer, that is also foul. We have nothing to do with that. So there were few incidents like that. Meanwhile, the Jews of Medina Manorah, they had also promised, right? So they're inside. They're on this side of the trench, right? They're on this side. What did they do? They were also, you know, they hadn't anticipated the trench. They thought that all the Mushrikeen would come in and infiltrate and then they would just, you know, a couple of little lip service, ek do hatyar marker, they would be considered as having joined the war. But now the Mushrikeen were in. So there was one Jew who, this is another famous story, of the aunt of the Prophet Sayyidina Safiyyar radiallahu that there was a Jew who came spying, and he came so close to spying on the setup where the women and children were. So she first told, it's a Jeev story, Sayyidina Hassan ibn Istabit, who was a male sahaba, that... He should do something about him. But he said, I'm not a mujahid type. That's why I'm back here with the women and children. And that's why I'm not over there. He was the poet of the Prophet So then she took it on her own self. This is an auntie, put it that way. Right? And she herself uh, killed that Jew with a stone who was spying on, uh, spying or perhaps trying to attack the Muslims. Alright? Here are a few Sahaba, some books mention five or six Sahaba 
who became martyred. Many stories uh, that happened in this battle of Ahzab or the battle of the trench. This year Allah Ta'ala mentioned that we sent a wind to help. So what happened was that they didn't leave. They camped there for almost a month, for 29 days. And so the Muslims were also getting weary, right? Because the trench was preventing them from going out into their fields, herding their goats and camels. It was preventing their livelihood. Already they were with very scarce resources. So this was getting to be a prolonged battle of the wills. So then Sayyidina Rasulullah made dua to Allah Ta'ala. Allah Ta'ala make something happen. So that Allah Ta'ala sent this severe wind that was mentioned here in this ayah. Uh, this is in verse number 9. That we sent a severe wind against them. And so when that wind came, it overturned all of their pots. It disrupted some of their animals. Some of their animals ran away. And their whole camp that they had camped, those 12,000, just imagine chaos broke out. So what happened? Abu Sufyan, who was the leader of the Quraysh, Mushrikeen of Makkah Makarama, he gave up after this wind. And he said, forget it, let's leave, because we cannot cross the trench anyway. We've been here for one month. There's no point. Our animals are dying. We're also running out of supplies. In any case, they left. And he also made an interesting statement. He said, the Banu Qureza have broken their pledge. Because they were expecting, that, okay, we can't cross the trench. The Banu Qureza had the ones who put us all up to this fight. And they're not doing anything. So not only did the Banu Qureza break their treaty with the Mu'mineen, they even broke their treaty with the Mushrikeen. That's the type of people they were. Right? So Abu Sufyan went back to Makkah Makarramah. Now once the Quraysh left, this is the way that tribes were. That once the big tribe leaves, and the big leader of the big tribe leaves, and basically then all of the unbelief, different tribes, all those multiple coalitions and tribes of Ahzab, they started going back one by one by one. Second thing that Allah Ta'ala mentions is that we helped you with the forces you did not see. Here the Mufasreen have mentioned that Nabi Yusuf mentioned hadith that Allah Ta'ala sent angels. And the angels did not actually engage his kuffar in battle because there was no military engagement per se that took place. But they instilled fear in the hearts of the kuffar by making the kuffar think that the mu'min were in a greater number than they were. And it's even mentioned in some books of Sira that when these unbelieving forces went back, the angels verbally taunted them. And, and, and said to leave here, you can never defeat Islam, you can never remain here, etc. So this is the help Allah Ta'ala gives, and this is the help that can still come today. And this is not just mere optimism. Allah Subhanahu can still send angels today to Mu'mineen if they wish to rise up to those non-Muslims who are militarily oppressing them. And whether that means the Syrians fighting this fellow Bashar al-Assad, Right, and Allah knows best, maybe even right now, in Aleppo and Damascus, Allah Ta'ala sent His angels to assist the righteous mu'mineen against the forces of their oppressor. That should be our dua. That our dua. Right? And it's amazing, I will tell you, although most of the Pakistan newspapers are very mellow about this, because I never write English language papers, because I never write, like to write anything that has any Islamic sentiment. All across the spectrum in the West, fascinating, from the right to the left, or in America, Republicans and Democrats, conservative and liberal newspapers, all of them have been writing about the massive atrocities that Bashar, Bashar al-Assad has been perpetrating. But Express Tribune and Dawn, they can hardly mention this, and even when they do, they mince their words so much, lest anybody's emotions get stirred. Similarly with the uh, massacre and attempted genocide taking place of the Muslims in Burma, this is again something that certain, you know, an illiberal, I don't even use the term liberal fascist because that doesn't even make sense. They're not liberal. Illiberal secularists. You have liberal secularists and you have illiberal secularists. 
It has nothing to do with being secular or religious. It has a question of being liberal. The illiberal segment of this society uh, really has a very poor record in terms of their writing and their columns and the newspapers. They never criticize human rights atrocities that take place against Muslims. Although all over the West people write about these things, you will never find anything on that. Right? In fact, these illiberal secularists never criticize the drone strikes, although there's such a wide range of intellectual opinion in the best universities in America that criticize the drone strikes. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, unanimously deplore it. But, mashallah, Pakistan Human Rights Commission, Asma Jahangir, they're 100% for it. Right? It shows you, right? Uh, when one human rights activist of Pakistan is against the entire world's human rights, it shows there's some bias. There's a very severe bias. And this is what I call the illiberal bias, the anti-deen bias. They're so biased against deen, so biased against deen, it's amazing. That level of bigotry and prejudice I've never seen in any community where the illiberal secular elites, and not all the secularists are like that. There are many liberal and compassionate secular people in this country. Of course, we wish that they would come on deen, but at the very least, they are people of compassion and people of righteousness and people of justice. Uh, But the illiberals is another crowd altogether. Here, so Nabi Akrim Sallallahu this is uh, this battle of Azam. Now, I'll tell you one more nice story before we move on to the next set of verses, which is 12 onward. One more story. I'll tell you, this is a long story in the Sahih of Bukhari, but it shows you something. It shows you the humanity of warfare, which is something that I think people don't realize. That's what the Western human rights activists realizes because they know that, first of all, drone strike kills a supposed militant who was never allowed their right to defend themselves in court. There's no trial that has taken place. Even just a person's rumor, even in Sarfat, these are people who have lots of tribal and personal enmities. If they have a person who is an enemy, all they have to do is just say, oh, this person is a terrorist. And the Americans don't care. There's no investigative process. There's no trial process. There's no proof. Sometimes even just on mere allegations, they will deem that person to be a terrorist. And who will they kill? They will kill him. They will kill his wife. They will kill his mother. They will kill his father. They will kill his grandparents. They will kill his children. They will kill his grandchildren. They will kill innocent neighbors. They will do all of that. Right? And that's what almost every sensible person in the West views as outrageous. But the liberal class in this country loves the drone strikes. They wish there could be more. If it was up to them, they would push the button, I think, on the entire province. Because they just don't like the dean of these people. They don't like the deen of these people. And so people forget there's a very human aspect to this. And I think that that's because the social media has made people forget that war kills real people. Real people die. This isn't a video game. This isn't policy. This isn't writing something in a newspaper. Right? Real people and real innocent people die. So to show you another aspect of the humanity of warfare, writes in Sahih Bukhari, a very long hadith, and this is known as the Dawat of Sayyidina Jabir, that Sayyidina Rasulullah once when he was digging uh, the trench and when he struck the boulder so Sayyidina, Rasul, uh, Sayyidina Jabir he saw that the Prophet had the stone wrapped to his belly because the stomach had shrunk so much there was a cavity in his rib where his stomach should be and to save himself from the pain he had to wrap a stone in there and wrap a cloth around it so then Sayyidina Jabir because he was the lover of the Prophet he went home and he asked his wife is there anything anything he first asked the permission of the Prophet that can I take leave from my duty of digging I need to go home real quick for something and he asked his wife 
uh, anything. So she said, okay, look, we have this one really, like you can call it a tame, not la- tame, lame, crippled, baby, fakir type of goat. We have this goat, which is pretty much the skid on bones because we haven't been able to graze him properly. And we have a few small amount of flour. So Sayyidina Jabal then slaughtered that small, very small goat. And whatever little meat he got get from it, then she cooked it. And whatever little wheat or flour she had, um, the wife, she ground it uh, into bread. And then she told him that you go and bite the bone. It's interesting, she said these words. And she said, don't embarrass me. And by embarrassing, she meant, don't invite all the Sahaba because I'm embarrassed, I won't be able to host them. I have barely enough food for one or two people. So Sayyidina Jabra went to the Prophet and said, Ya Rasulullah, we have prepared some food for you and one or two others. So Sayyidina Sallallahu So the Prophet said, okay. He told all of the Sahaba to come. <laughs> all of the Muhajir, all the Ansar, every single Sahaba. He told them all to come. It's Sahidith in the collection of Bukhari. And so Sayyidina Jabra quickly went ahead and he told his wife, and his wife said, Didn't I tell you not to embarrass me in front of my beloved Messenger Sallallahu So here, so the Prophet made an announcement. He said, O oh, people of the trends, Jabra has made a meal for us. All of you should leave your labor and you should come over there. So here, when they all reached there, uh, and yet then so he told his, so the Sayyidina Jabra told the Prophet that we just have a little bit. So then he told his wife that, and then the wife said, okay, if you told the Prophet, if the Prophet is informed of the situation, then Allah has not been obeyed. Then she was relaxed. So when they reached the house, Sayyidina Rasulullah took a bit of his saliva, and he put it in the meat, the pot of meat. And he took a little bit of his saliva, and he put it in the dough, dough and he told Jabra that, tell your wife to start making the rotis. And tell the Sahaba to start eating from the handi. And Sayyidina Jabir and other Sahaba also night this incident that every single Sahaba ate from their full. Remember, there were thousands of them. Thousands of Sahaba Kram ate and they ate completely to their fill. And then when they left, Sayyidina Jabir says that as much food as was in the Hamdi was there and as much dough was still there. And then the Prophet told Sayyidina Jabir that now we have left, now you should feed the women and the neighbors and the other people, with the non men of your neighborhood. So this was a barakah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put in the Biyakrim Samsam, his barakah and nusra for the mu'mineen. All right. Anyway, many more details about this battle and many interesting incidents that took place that one could read in the books of Sira. Verse number 12. That when the hypocrites and those who had a disease and a weakness in their hearts, what did they say? Ma wa'adana Allahu wa rasuluhu illa ghurura. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet they have only, they have promised us nothing except ghurur, means deception and delusion. Illusion, deception and illusion. What does it mean? This is when Nabi Yaqsim he struck the rock. And he said that, oh, every time he struck it, Allah Ta'ala unveiled him a fatah in room and forest. So the munafiqeen said that, you know, they were trying to act as if they were believers. That's why they said this, Ma'wa'adanlahu. They took Allah Ta'ala in the Prophet's name. That we can't even get out of this situation. These armies are coming to us. We're struggling to build this trench. And we're being told that once one day we're going to get... Uh, Victories in Rome and in Faris. So the Munafikin, uh, they couldn't believe that. They said, look at these people. So actually the reality is that the Munafikin had no religion. Right? And they just used Allah Ta'ala's name and the Prophet's name to fool people. What does that mean? What I'm pointing out is that today people do the same thing. Today people who don't even believe really in the Prophet, they'll say, if the Prophet were alive today, he would do this. 
right? Or the Prophet or God and the Prophet wouldn't want you to do this, they would want you to do this. They themselves don't have real Iman, but they even will invoke Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His beloved Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to as as a veil or veneer for their own ideology or their own view. So the Munafiqin were the same way. So it means that that practice can be traced back to the <coughs> Munafiqin. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in verse number <coughs> 13, <coughs> when a group of them said, Ya Ahla Yathrib, that all oh, people of Yathrib, La Muqam Lakum that you cannot remain here so therefore you should leave there's no place for you means there's no maqam there's no place for you to take a stand so therefore you should leave so the munafiqin were trying to weaken the resolve of the mu'mineen by making them think that they will be annihilated if they try to stand in battle so the munafiqin were walking around saying this one thing you should know that Yathrib was the name, pre-Islamic name of Medina Munawra and one of the sign of munafiqin also was that they would call Medina Yathrib as opposed to calling it Medina, Medina is sort of from Medina to Nabi Wasallam, the city of the Prophet, they simply just called it the city. It meant Yani, the city of the Prophet Wasallam. And in the Arabic language, the word Yathrib is a negative, has a negative connotation. It means to revile or to abuse. So in a hadith in the Muslim Imam Ahmad Sayyidina Rasulullah has forbidden us to ever call Medina Munawara or Makkah Makarama Yathrib. And he says that whoever calls it Yathrib should seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rather it is Taba, Taba, Taba. And this is why many people then start calling it Medina to Tayyibah. Taba, Taba means it's pure, it's pristine, it's noble, it's not something to be reviled. So these were some of the munafiqeen that they wanted permission from the Prophet The next part is then a group of them asked the Prophet permission saying that our houses are exposed, even though their houses were not exposed, but they only wanted to flee. What does that mean? That they were tribes of Munafiqun, and they wanted to leave, because they didn't think that this trench would be built, or it would be successful. And they claimed that their homes were exposed, because the trench wasn't falling, but it wasn't, like I told you, there was natural protection for their homes, whether in the forms of hills and mountains, or the forms of large boulders. And in fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says in verse 14, <coughs> But if they were invaded from the sides, if, enemy, if an enemy was to attack them from the sides, then if they were asked to dissent and join in civil war, they would do so but little delay. What does that mean? That if the mushrikeen came, these munafiqeen had promised that they would join in on the side of the mushrikeen. So they're acting as if they need to go protect their homes, but actually they're retreating so that the mushrikeen come, that when the mushrikeen come, then they will leave from their homes and they will also attack the believers. This is what Allah subhanahu is revealing to Sayyidina Rasulullah here in verse number 14. Verse 15, Even though they had promised Allah subhanahu they had made a pledge to Allah subhanahu that they would not turn their backs and indeed they should know and the pledge that one makes with Allah subhanahu is accountable will be answerable for the pledges that one makes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then in verse 16, Allah subhanahu ta'ala is saying a warning to those who wanted to desert. Allah subhanahu ta'ala says, and then flight, taking flight, will not benefit you in any way. Because if, if you were to flee from death or killing, even so you're only allowed to live for a little while. What does it mean that every person is going to die? You may flee from the battle today, but you can't flee from death. 
And then the next verse in Allah Ta'ala mentions that even if in any event that if Allah Ta'ala wishes to destroy a person, none can stop Allah Ta'ala. I mean if Allah Ta'ala wants to bring death and destruction, simply fleeing the battlefield won't say it. So in verse 17 Allah Ta'ala says, who is it that will shelter you from Allah if Allah Ta'ala wishes ill from you? Or if Allah Ta'ala wishes mercy from you, uh, they will not find for themselves a protector or savior than other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is their choice. They desert, Allah ta'ala will wish to punish them. If they stay, then Allah ta'ala will send mercy upon them. Either way, there's no being who can punish them except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's no being who can be merciful towards them except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Allah ta'ala says that Allah ta'ala has, Allah ta'ala already knows and has perfect knowledge of those of you who hinder others. And hinder and present obstacles and say to their friends, come to us but hardly show up when there's trouble. What does that mean? It's a long story. It just means there was a Sahaba who had a very good friend who actually was really a Munafik. And that Munafik told him that you should, and he, the Munafik was staying back from the battle. And he told that Sahaba that you should come and stay with me. Don't go into those front lines because you won't be able to win. And Allah Ta'ala is answering that, that Allah Ta'ala knows each and everything. And he knows who are your false friends. He knows that are your True, who knows who are your true friends. Then verse number 19. Uh, they hardly show up when there's trouble out of stinginess towards you, but when terror comes and fear comes, you see them looking to you with their eyes rolling, like one upon whom death is descending. Then when the terror and fear is gone, they will set upon you with short tongues. Means that if the enemy was to come, and because outwardly they were Muslim, they will turn to you to defend them. Right? They will turn to you to defend them. But when the terror is gone, they will set upon you with sharp tongues. They will say, oh, you are not, you weren't capable or you weren't ready to fight. Another meaning is that they will, uh, that they will look to you with their eyes rolling, is that their eyes are rolling with greed, that they want some of the booty. They want to be counted as a member of the army and therefore get any spoils of war if there are any to be had. So these are those people when they have never believed. So Allah Ta'ala has annihilated their acts and foiled their deeds and that is easy for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that they think the confederates have not gone Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says here's the now this verse yes يَحْسَبُونَ الْأَحْزَابَ لَمْ يَذْهَبُوا that they think the ahzab the coalition forces and confederates have not gone but if they uh, if those forces were to arrive and come they will wish that they were living in the desert among the nomads asking for news for you and even if they were with you they would hardly fight at all so this is all of this is about the munafikeen of Medina Manawra and what their attitude was during the battle right okay verse 21 here now Allah subhanahu is done talking about that particular incident uh, sorry Allah subhanahu is done talking about the munafikeen now Allah subhanahu is going to mention how it is that the munafik and the mu'mineen should be and again these are some of the most important and famous ayat of Quran al-Kareem so verse 21 لَكَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا that indeed you have for you you have an excellent a beautiful excellent example in the messenger of Allah but for who لِمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُ اللَّهَ for that person who yearns for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَالْيَوْمَ الْآخِرَةِ and yearns for the last day وَذَكَرَ اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا and who remembers Allah Ta'ala abundantly first let's do the specific context of this what Allah SWT is saying here is that O Mu'minin you shouldn't be like the Munafikin who are doubting the strength of the Ummah who are doubting Allah Ta'ala's help who are going to and fro who are making excuses rather you should take as an example the Prophet 
that he is so steadfast, he is persevering, he is firm, he is trusting and depending on Allah and he is not ghafil of Allah But again, this ayah is very general, and this means that in every sense, for every person in the ummah, everything about the Prophet is a perfect and excellent example for them. But who is going to view that uswa as hasana? Who is going to view the model of the Prophet as beautiful? It's only going to be that person who yearns for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who loves Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is waiting for the last day. They're waiting for the day of judgment to come because they want to meet Allah ta'ala and wa dhakrallahu kathira and they remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abundantly. That means that it's only when a person does dhikr kathir that a person will be able to view the sunnah as beautiful and will be able to Follow that example. Then going back to ayat that is specific about this verse 22. So, So when the mu'mineen saw the coalition forces, they were, they got their yaqeen. That this is what Allah subhanahu wa and the, His Prophet has promised us. And indeed Allah Ta'ala and the Messenger spoke truly. It means that Allah Ta'ala promised that this large army would come against you and that the trench would work and that you would be protected. So they, their yaqeen went up when this came. This is what Aswa And all of this only increased them in Iman, increased them in submission, increased them in Iman and increased them in obedience. So this is the first level of Mu'mineen. That they were increased in their iman, increased in their submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As opposed to someone who would see the army and get scared, or who would see the army and get shuck, or who would see the army and waver. They were such people that it increased them in their iman, it increased them in their submission. This is basically that whenever you realize the promise of Qur'an al-Karim is true, and the promise of the Prophet is true, it should increase your iman. Then in verse 22, Allah Ta'ala mentions a khas group from amongst the believers. Minal mu'minina rijalun. That from amongst the believers, the believers who were having yaqeen and their iman and Islam was increasing. Right? That's a long topic, different iman and Islam. It just means their faith in their heart and their submission outwardly in terms of obedience. You can try and think of it like that. Their yaqeen and obedience increased. That from amongst the believers there are some who have been true to what they have promised Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And from amongst that, this is akhasul khawas, man kaza nahbahu. That there is that one who has, uh, you know, who has really fulfilled his pledge. And there's that one who is waiting. But they have not changed and they have never changed in any way. What does it mean? So there's some who have given their lives and some who are waiting. They haven't changed in any way whatsoever. What does this mean? So this is an incident that is behind this verse. That there was a Sahaba, Sayyidina Anas ibn Malik ibn He had an uncle, Sayyidina Anas ibn Nadar radiallahu so that Sayyidina Anas, the uncle, he was not able to fight in the battle of Badr. And he always regretted this his whole life. And he always used to say that I wasn't, I didn't have Iman, right? I wasn't the Badr Saba. So whenever Allah Ta'ala next, at the first available opportunity that Allah Ta'ala gives me to offer myself for Shahada and to fight those unbelievers who are trying to fight my beloved Messenger Sassam, I want to present myself for that. And so he went to Uhud. 
when he went to Uhud, uh, he was martyred in Uhud in such a way that the books mention that he had 80 wounds on his body. And 80 wounds, the reason why sometimes they mention the wounds is they're trying to show that that warrior wasn't killed by turning away. He was struck down during the battle. That is the real shahada, right? To be struck down while you were trying to engage the enemy. So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because he had made this pledge to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the next opportunity I get. So here Allah ta'ala is referring to him that amongst the believers there are those who are true to the covenant. So, uh, and this is a long hadith in Sahih Bukhari about his whole incident. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to him. Second then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, had said that if you want to see the Prophet said that if you want to see somebody who's walking on earth, who has fulfilled his pledge, another example he gave was Talha ibn Ubaidullah. So this is another possibility uh, that he also uh, suffered 70 wounds in this battle. But he still didn't become shaheed. He became shaheed later on in another battle after the Prophet had passed away. So different possibilities about whom this is uh, referring to. Here then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then continues by saying in verse 25, That Allah Ta'ala then made the believers return, disbelievers return back to their home with their ghayz in all of their fury and their rage, and they were not able to gain any advantage and gain any good. And then indeed, then what does Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala say? And Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala suffices for the believers in fighting. This we did for you last year. Qatl means killing and qital means fighting. So in battle and in fighting, Allahu kawiyan aziza, and indeed Allah Subhanahu is all powerful and almighty. That means that if any group are true mu'mineen, then Allah Subhanahu will be sufficient for them in that battle. Alright. Verse number twenty-six onwards. Okay. Then Allah Subhanahu has. This is referring to the Ahl Kitab. This is going to be the incident of uh, the Banu Qurayza, right? So those Ahl Kitab that I mentioned to you, the Banu Qurayza, Allah Taala says, Allah Taala brings them down from their fortifications and their fortresses. Those of the Ahl Kitab who the Haruhum who had supported them had backed those Mushrikeen, those Ahzab, all of those different forces. Allah Taala will take them out. Of their fortresses, and Allah Taala will cast a terror into their hearts. Allah Taala will cast a fear and terror for them in their heart. And you will execute a party of them, and you will take another party of them as prisoners. This is what Allah Taala Himself in Quran mentions the punishment that Sayyidina Rasulullah will do for these people. Then and Allah Ta'ala will make you a successor to their land means that now the believers will take over the lands that were inhabited and populated and fortresses and lands that were inhabited and populated by the Banu Qurayza and with Diyarahum and their homes and their property as opposed to the early tribe which was allowed to leave with their property remember in this case no you will take their homes and their properties and indeed you will uh, it is a land that you will never it you will be a land that you have never set foot upon, that you have never trod upon. Means your the Muslim realm will expand into territory on which no Muslim had previously tread. Wakanallahu ala kulli shayin kadira, and indeed Allah Taala is powerful over all things. 
So as he mentioned to you earlier, Sayyidina Rasulullah had entered into a treaty with these three Jewish tribes of Medina. The Banu Qainuka broke the treaty and the Battle of Badr. They were punished for that. It's another story. Banu Nadir were banished from Medina in the fourth year after Hijrah. I told you their story briefly. Here now who was left is the Banu Quraysa. Interesting, the Banu Quraysa had a ruler, Huyay ibn Akhtab, and he actually realized the truth of the Prophet ﷺ. In fact, in some sense, he was initially, originally, the most sympathetic and understanding of the Jewish tribes. And that's why of these three tribes, the Banu Quraysa had remained true to their peace treaty with the Mu'mineen up till this point. But when this point happened, then Qab ibn As'ad, who was a... Uh, Sorry, Qab ibn Asad was the leader of the Banu Quraiza. He was the one who was true and he had kept the Banu Quraiza true to their treaty because he recognized the truth of the Prophet ﷺ. Huyay was from the Banu Nadir and he was that leader who was expelled and he was still upset about that. So he went back to Madinah Manawra and he broke entry into that fortress and he addressed the leader of the Banu, leader of the Banu Nadir, addressed the leader of the Banu Quraiza that look, you know, what's going to happen if the Prophet ﷺ uh, you know, survives this battle that these Mushrikeen are waging against him. So basically he went, Tim, let's put it this way. The leader of the Banu Quraiza, remember, orchestrated this whole battle. He went and even though he recognized the rule of the Prophet ﷺ, and so he was true to his treaty outwardly, but he went and orchestrated this battle and got all of these armies to mass. Meanwhile, the leader of Banu Nadir, who was in exile, he came back to Medina to meet him and said, look, you've made this massive plot what is going to happen if the Muslims survive your plot? What if they return from that battle victorious? Then they're going to know that it was you. Then what are you going to do in such a situation? Right? Uh, so, uh, this was the discussion they had. Kaab and Huye. So then what uh, the Banu Nazir one said, that said, no, we should continue to do this. Right? We should continue to plot. And the Banu Quraiza once said that, but if they come back, they're going to come back to me. You're already in exile. He said, no, I will come. I will come and live with you in the fortress. And if their revenge comes on you, it will come on me also. I won't keep myself safe in exile. And he did that, by the way. He actually did there. And he was also in the fortress when the Muslims came. Fair. So when Sayyidina Rasulullah, he saw some heard about the, uh, realized about the betrayal of the Banu Quraiza, because if nothing else, remember the Banu Quraiza were supposed to come to the defense of the believers. They should have also shown up for the battle of church, and they didn't, right? And then the Apostle, through his scouts and information, found out that they were actually the ones who orchestrated it. They were complicit, so they violated the treaty. So now when all those Ahzab coalition forces left, now when the Apostle came back to Mandiwanara, now he turned his attention to the fortress of the Banu Quraiza. Now we have to deal with them for violating the treaty, not being in the mutual defense and orchestrating this whole thing in the first place. So who did he send? He sent Sayyidina Sa'd ibn Mu'ad radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Now when Sayyidina Sa'd ibn Mu'ad radiallahu ta'ala anhu, uh, no, wait, that's second, okay. First thing is that uh, the angel Jibreel comes to the Prophet and, tells the, and told the Prophet when he brought him this verse that you've laid down your weapons and the Prophet said yes they've left and then Jibreel said no we haven't laid down our weapons I mean, about the angels 
He was the Amir of the army. He would lay down our weapons. I'm headed towards the fortress of Banu Kureza because they are the ones who betrayed you. So this was the angel Jibreel and all the angels moved their army to Banu Kureza. So then Sayyidina then instructed the Sahaba that okay, now we should all march to Banu Kureza. This is by the way that incident that some of you may remember if you studied fiqh in Islamic law that the Prophet told the Sahaba that to go to Banu Kureza immediately. Pray Asr when you reach there. And some of them reached there in time for Asr and some of them, Asr came on the way and they weren't sure. Did the Prophet mean that we should pray Asr when we reach there, even if we reach there after sunset? And some of them took it literally. So they didn't pray Asr. Their namaz was kazan. When they arrived at Munu Kureza to seize in the siege of that fortress, then they prayed Asr Qadha. And others said, no, the Prophet meant we should reach there before the time of Asr ends. And if we couldn't reach there in time, we pray Asr on the way. When the Prophet found out about that, the Prophet said that both of your Prayers are accepted, although yes, the ones who prayed Asr on the way understood my will better. And this has been understood then by the ulama of deen that if you have multiple ijtihads by multiple fuqaha, multiple of them can be valid. Or there may be one that may be preferred, and you may prefer one over the other, but preferring one position over the other does not enable you to negate the validity of the other. Alright, anyway, so the Muslims then and the angels, they're all there besieging Banu Qurayza. 25 days pass and the Jews don't come out of their fortress. But after, and after the 25 days, and they may be there waiting now, that maybe the Munafikin will help them, maybe somebody else will help them, but it didn't happen. After 25 days, there's supplies, food, one can imagine they can't hold out any longer. So now, Qab ibn Asad, who is the head of the Banu Qurayza, he addresses his own people. And this is something that some of the women who would later convert to Islam told the Prophet And he said, look, I have three offers. And I want you to ask, oh my people, as your leader, I present three options to you. You tell me which one you like. First, first option is that we all accept Iman and, ex- and, ex- and say that we believe in the Prophet And they said, I swear by Allah that we all know that he is Allah's true messenger and Nabi. So that's our first option. We can simply fit. He fits the description of the Nabi that is mentioned in our Torah. He is the Nabi we were waiting for. That's why Jews were in Medina. They were waiting. They were camped in Medina. Because they recognized that as the city. It had the markings of the city that was in their scripture. That on the city the last prophet would come. And he said he has the same signs of the last prophet. But the Jews respond. And if we do so we will be safe. Our children will be safe. Our wives will be safe. But his people said no. People, We don't want to do that option. We don't want to forsake our own deen. Second option he gave them, he said, okay, second option is we ourselves kill our own women and children, and then we fight to the last man. Either we win or we die. So these people said, no, we don't want to accept that, because if we were to win, then what's the point, what victory is that when we have lost our all, all families and children? He said that if we're victorious, we can always uh, find new wives and father new children, right? That's what he said. Ajib. Third proposal, he said, okay, that tonight is the Sabbath. And the Muslims won't expect that we attack them in the Sabbath, the night before Saturday, the night between Friday and Saturday. So let's all leave the fortress uh, tonight and then we attack the Muslims, cast them by surprise. The Jews said that no, we don't want to spoil the rules of Sabbath. Interestingly, uh, one would have thought they would have gone for that one. But they said that no, we declined that also. So then, Banu Qureza then sent, then he sent a message to the Prophet for negotiation then, right? So who did the Prophet and he requested that Abu Lubaba, Sayyidina Abu Lubaba should be sent. Why? Because Sayyidina Abu Lubaba was from the Ansar, from the people of Madinah Manara who were there before. And his tribe had a lot of dealings with the Banu Qureza. So he was well known to them and they were thinking he may be able to negotiate a settlement. 
that is a bit soft for us because he knows us and he's been so close to us. So Sayyidina Abu Lubaba went and they told the Prophet we want to discuss with the Prophet sent him. Sayyidina Abu went, they opened up the fortress for him, he went inside. All of their women and children were presented in front of him, they started crying in front of him. So Sayyidina Abu Lubaba had a feeling of compassion, right? Because he had known them for so long. And so then he went to them, so then when he went to the men and they asked that what would happen if we just surrender and we just come out? So he told them and he literally made a sign with his finger. And he told them, you will be killed. Because the eye had been revealed, right? That some will be killed and some... It means the men will be killed and the women will be captured. So he told them that. When he did that, he says, he narrates that he immediately realized that he was wrong to say that actually. Because he wasn't supposed to tell them what the Prophet intended to do. So in a sense he felt he betrayed. So he came out of the fortress. He went straight to the masjid. He went straight to Muslim. I mean, nobody reprimanded him from this. He himself realized once he did it that oh, I just slipped. He went straight to the masjid and he tied himself to that famous pillar, which is still there today, Istiwana Abi Lababa. And he tied himself to that pillar and he said that I won't release myself until Allah Ta'ala reveals my innocence on the heart of the Prophet Wasallam. So, some that old Mufassirun say that in Surah Anfal, uh, that particular verse in Surah Anfal, verse 27, is about, is declaring his um, innocence. Here, when Sayyidina Rasulullah heard that he has gone to Masjid Nabwi and he's tied himself to a pillar and this is what happened, so he actually said that he wished he had come to me first, I would have sought forgiveness on his behalf to Allah SWT. So, me and Sayyidina Rasulullah viewed it as a relatively not such a man. The Prophet himself wasn't so angry with him and said, I will sought forgiveness. But now that he has handed the matter over to Allah SWT, I can do nothing. So he remained tied to the pillar. His wife would come inside Masjid Nabwi. He said, no sahaba should talk to me, nothing. His wife would untie him for salah and his wife would tie him back for salah. Allah Akbar. Here many wives are more than willing to tie their husbands now. Right? Huh? No, but this was the point is that this was his wife's love for Allah SWT and his wife's support. And this is the real wife that the wife supports her husband in her in his deen. And the wife supports the husband in every aspect of deen, including helping the husband make tawbah or helping the husband attract the infinite mercy of Allah SWT. So so some commentators say Surah and Fals about that, but the real is Surah number nine, Surah Tawbah verse one oh two. And that is the ayah which Allah Subhanahu revealed about Sayyidina Abu Dhabar that he had been exonerated. So then when the people, when the Prophet recited this verse, so the Sahaba went to him, they wanted to untie him, but he said, no, I want Sayyidina Rasulullah himself to personally untie me. So then Sayyidina Rasulullah came and he personally untied him from that istiwana, from that pillar. So this is the story of Sayyidina Abu anhu. Here, even though Sayyidina Abu Lubaba had told them, hinted them, right, they had no choice and there was no other option. So they surrendered to the Prophet And they came out of the fortress and they said, we surrender and we present ourselves to your judgment. Now, how is it going to be decided? Now, there's a very interesting feature about Sira, how the Prophet used consultation in making decisions. So the members of the Aus tribe, they came to the Prophet and they said, similarly, let us decide between the Banu Qurayza because we were their allies. And they did it not in a sense of favoritism, in a sense of guilt. That we used to be their allies and we were the ones who were the go-between when we made the treaty. 
And so if they've broken the treaty with the Ummah, they've first and foremost broken the treaty with us because we were the middlemen in the treaty. So they said we should be the ones who are allowed to decide because of if anyone they've betrayed us the most. So uh, the Prophet said that okay, we will let your Alf decide. The tribe of Aus and the leader of Aus was Sayyidina Sa'd ibn Nawad. So he was given the matter. Now, this is a long story, but actually he was struck by an arrow during this battle of Azab, right? So he was very much uh, clear. He realized that the betrayal of the Banu Qurayza was that they wanted the Prophet and the Sahaba to die. That was their intent, right? And as the Prophet said, actions are based according to intentions. So when he came to meet, uh, Sayyidina Rasulullah he says, so the Prophet first he told the Sahaba this is nothing that he said stand up for your leader and so the Prophet stood up and all the Sahaba stood up for Sayyidina Sa'd ibn Nawal because he was the leader of the Aus right then he told them that you are going to decide and I am happy that you decide and the Jews have also said that they are happy that you decide so what is your decision so then uh, Sayyidina Sa'd ibn Nawal and they pronounced the decision they said that all the able-minded men should be executed their wealth will be distributed amongst the Muslims and all the women and children will be taken captive. And then, Qasayna Saad hadn't heard this revelation yet. He had been injured. He was in Medina. He was summoned. So the Prophet told him that your decision is exactly what Allah Ta'ala revealed in the ayah we just recited. Right? Uh, and interestingly, this also is the, Islam, the Jewish law in their Torah and Tamud. The punishment for such a treason is execution of the men. So actually you could even say that they were punished according to Jewish law. That is what Jewish law would have mandated for them. Right? So they were, all the men were executed. And some reports say that this was 700 men. And like I told you, Huey, who was the head of Bani Nadir, he was there also. And he was also executed. His daughter, Safiya, she became the wife of the Prophet Alright? And meanwhile, there was only one woman who was executed because when this was happening, this one woman tried to kill the Sahaba. And then so then she was executed for the act of that murder, uh, for killing that Sahaba. Right? And then some of the children, which is a very fascinating thing, uh, Sayyidina Atiyah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he was a Jew from the Banu Qurayza who was not killed because he was a boy. Only the able-bodied men were killed. Uh, and then he grew up to be uh, a Muslim. Now this is something that many non-Muslim Orientalists, because most of them are Jewish to begin with, they're upset that 700 people were killed. So again, this is war, right? And this was a violation of treaty, this is a breach of treaty. Not only did they not come to the defense, they orchestrated the whole thing. And they had seen before, the Banu Qurayza, uh had seen before the example of the Banu Nadir. They had shown once that this is what's going to happen, you will be punished, you will be caught. And because they didn't relent, they didn't repent, they still uh, plotted against the Muslims. So Allah Ta'ala Himself decreed the punishment for them as death. And if you're a mu'min, if, you, if, you, if some of us can rationally think that this is the correct punishment, and if you can't come to that conclusion rationally, it doesn't matter because your rationality has to submit to your imam. And when Allah Ta'ala has decreed that as your punishment in Qur'an, then your imam requires you to believe that that was the punishment that befit the crime. Right? And, you know, if you look at the conversation that took place, given that they knew the... I mean, they could have taken the option to accept Iman, right? And this wouldn't have been conversion by force, because they're saying that, let's take Iman, we know he's the Prophet. 
So they meant that the offer that they did, the option they discussed amongst themselves was to take Iman by choice because they recognized the Prophet to be true, but they chose not to do that either. Alright. Here, another story about Sayyidina Sadim bin Muadzim and a couple of stories about him, but we'll have to skip those, but very interesting. Worthwhile. Well, I'll just tell you very briefly, when he passed away, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that the arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shuddered in sadness. Uh, well, not sadness, but the arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shuddered when Sayyidina Sadim passed away, and the angels were exuberant when he passed away, but nonetheless, after his janazah, when the Prophet was standing at his grave, he remained standing there some time, saying, Subhanallah, Subhanallah, and then Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. So the Sahaba asked the Prophet that you remain there for some time reciting this. So the Prophet said, Yes, that the grave of this pious servant was beginning to constrict upon him until I said, Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, and his grave was left open for him. Allah Ta'ala alleviated the difficulty. And this is one of the things that the Muhaddisin had mentioned, that if the Sahaba of the lever of Sayyidina Sa'd ibn Mu'ad, but that he can get this constriction of the grave, then one can just imagine what will be the state of sinners like us. So maybe that person may be able to save themselves from the fire of Jahannam, but the punishment or constriction of the grave may be a punishment that is inflicted upon us to wash away any sins that we have left, so that by the time we are resurrected, then we are resurrected in such a state that Allah Ta'ala can send us straight into Jannah. Yes, there's some very intense things in our deen. Right? Verse number 28. Another major passage in Surah Al-Azab with a lot of lessons. Now we are done with the mm, incident of the Battle of Azab. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها النبي كل أزواجك إن كنتن تردن تردن الحياة الدنيا وزينتها فتعالينا أمتكن وأصرحكن صلاحا جميلا O Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Say to your wives, quote, that if you desire the life of this world and its zina, and its zinat, its allure, its adornment, its beauty, its finery, its refinery, fata'alayna, then you should come then forward and I will provide for you. And what does it mean? I will provide for you a generous provision and then I will separate myself from you, it means I will divorce you on the best of terms. This is what Allah subhanahu wa told the Prophet in Quran as part of public knowledge to say to the Ummahatu Mu'mineen. However, وَإِن كُنْتُنَّ However, if what you desire is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's Messenger sallallahu and the everlasting abode دار الآخرة فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ أَأَنْدَلَ الْمُحْسِنَاتِ And indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared for the muhsinat, for the noble, virtuous, pious women مِنْ كُنَّ from amongst you أَجْرًا azima, a tremendous reward. The third, Ya Nisayin Nabi, Sallallahu O women of the Prophet, means O wives of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi If any one of you commits an indecency, Mubayyinatin, that is clear, Yudha'af lahal adabu 
that the punishment will be multiplied for her doubly وَكَانَ ذَلَكَ عَلَى اللَّهِ يَسِيرًا and indeed that is easy for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the same time وَمَنْ but whichever one of you is obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and humbly humbles oneself in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger and you do righteous deeds and good acts then we will give her twice a reward we will reward her doubly and indeed we have prepared a generous and bountiful provision for her Next, verse 32. Well, let's do this up to this point over here. Alright. So, after this victory against the Banu Qurayza, and after this victory, so to speak, in the Battle of Azab, so the Banu Qurayza had a lot of money. This is something I guess the Jews have always had, right? So they had a lot of money. And so in a lot of that wealth, property, possessions, treasure, animals, livestock, gold, all types of things, all of that came in the possession of the believers. So now the believers had a big surge in the financial health of that community. So when that happened, the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen, and it's, the accurate narration is that all of them, Ask Sayyidina Rasulullah for a slight increase in their monthly allowance. This was not some sin that they did. This was not something inappropriate that they asked, right? And certainly as male Sahaba were getting spoils of war and were getting booty. But the Prophet for him, Malik Ghanimat is haram. He doesn't get any booty for himself, personally. So the Ummah thought that, okay, since everybody's then everybody's individual condition has been financially uplifted due to this victory over Banu Qurayza and getting all of their mal, then why not should our stipend also be increased a little bit so that we can eat a little bit better, so that we can have clothing, etc. Right? Very simple needs. Simple needs. Allahu Akbar. But Allah is Allah. Allah is Allah. And Nabi himself did not like that this mutalaba of the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen. And what he did was then for one month, he stayed away from them. So Sayyidina Rasulullah disliked this request because he wanted them to be patient with whatever Allah Ta'ala has given. He did not want to artificially increase or support them from Bayt al-Mal and then he did not associate for them and he swore an oath that he wouldn't associate with them for a month. And then as days pass by, then words started to spread amongst the Sahaba. And the Sahaba started thinking that the Prophet has divorced all of the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen. And Sayyidina Umar was into partly because one of his daughters was also, Hafsa bin Umar, was one of the wives of the Prophet. So he went to the Prophet and said, some people are saying in the masjid and talking amongst themselves that you divorced all your wives. And the Prophet said, no, I haven't divorced them. So then Sayyidina said that, okay, do I have your permission? Can I clear this up? And can I do elan and announce to Sahaba that you haven't divorced? And Sayyidina said, yes, you can tell everyone that uh, no divorce has taken place. I've just withdrawn from them. Then after 29 days pass, which is a month, because a month can be, lunar month can be 29 or 30 days. So when 29 days pass, then Allah Ta'ala revealed these verses. That, okay, now what you should do is you should put this proposition Forth to them, you should ask them this question. So this is another interesting thing about the seerah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided the Prophet on how to be a husband also. Right? 
that okay fine you pull back from that now what should you do you should put this forth as a question to them alright so first Sayyidina Rasulullah went with this question uh, put this proposition forth to Ummu Mu'minina Aisha anha that okay Allah SWT said this is your choice and Ummu Aisha said that oh, she answered instantly he said why don't you go home and consult your parents and discuss it over with them and then respond she said there's nothing for me to consult with my parents it's an instantaneous decision I choose Allah SWT and his messenger and the Dar al-Akhirah and the everlasting abode and then when the Prophet posed to his other wives, the other Azwajah Mutahrat each one replied in a similar manner. And Sayyidina Rasulullah became very happy and appreciated it greatly from each and every one of them. And this detailed incident is also mentioned in Sahih Bukhari uh, in a long hadith. Now, question that may come in the heart of a person. Well, they weren't asking anything. Well, as you're going to see in the next passages as well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala held the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen to a higher standard. Higher standard. Perhaps one reason is because he needed to make them eligible for genital for those at the same level of the Prophet because they were his wives in the Akhirah as well. Perhaps because he wanted them to set a model for all women who are in deen, or working for deen, that they should content themselves with whatever Allah ta'ala gives them, they should not want or request more. Perhaps, uh, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, didn't like the fact that they asked for it. Maybe it's something that they would have, perhaps could have gotten or may have gotten or would have gotten. There can be many reasons. Uh, either way, no one can claim to know the motives behind anything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does. But this much we can say that he gave, he phrased the choice to them in a beautiful way by promising his love and the akhirah for them if they chose that other path. And that's why each and every one of them did uh, make that right choice. And then Allah Ta'ala then said, like we said, that in the sound of that Allah Ta'ala will, this is now a direct address to them. So first 28-29 was, Ya Ayuhan Nabi Wasallam. Then 30 onwards is, Ya Nisan Nabi. So here Allah Ta'ala is now personally, directly addressing them. Right? One is to instill awe and reverence in them, but one is also to bring them closer. And Allah SWT is explaining to them very simply that you are Nisa'an and Nabi Sussam, so you have a higher rank. The higher the rank, then the higher the risk. The higher the rank, the higher the risk, the higher the rewards. It's a high stakes game. Higher, higher the rewards. So this is what SWT is saying, that, and then if you do anything wrong, then you will be punished even more. So what is this Fahisha Mubayyana? So Mubayyana is a qaid, what does it mean? It means what we call in fan in usul afala hissi. It's those things that you don't need sharia to tell you are inappropriate. Even your own innate human sense tells you that's inappropriate. It's a clear and manifest inappropriate thing. Now Na'uzubillah, again, one sectarian ideology uses this ayah. Because they don't read one or two ayahs above and one or two ayahs below. They use this ayah to suggest that all of the because Umm Umni Khadijah had passed away at this point. So they say all of the Ham Umnin wanted to do Faisha. Naudu billah, naudu billah. Right? Again, we are the people who read their books. You are the people who meet the non-practicing secular members of that sect. But we read their books. What does that sect actually believe? Right? And the beliefs of any sect are going to be found in their books of theology. So they use this ayah to malign the Ummahat al-Mu'minin. Allahu Akbar. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying Bil Fard as a hypothetical 
possibility. Not that they did anything. The sense of the Arabic is crystal clear that were you to ever do such a thing. In fact, those who have studied Arabic grammar intensely, man is shart. And it's a shart for which buku is not necessary. It doesn't mean it actually has to take place. Clear, gosh, some of you would learn Arabic grammar to an extent that you can actually take out these nukat from Qur'an al-Karim. Right? So man is a shart that doesn't require wuku. It means that if were ever one of you bilfard wal mahal in an absolutely impossible situation, if any of you were to do something, you should know that your status and rank is such. Don't think that because you're the wives of the Prophet you Allah Ta'ala will be lenient with you. Rather, if anything was to happen, Allah Ta'ala will be doubly punishing with you. That's what it means. There's no mention here, now the Bilal, that anything has ever happened. Alright? Okay. And this will be very easy for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But at the same time, that if you're humble and obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Messenger, Allah ta'ala will double the rewards and we have prepared a risk and kareem for you. Alright. Then here, verse number... Okay, one ruling about this incident is that the Prophet gave them the option for divorce. So yes, in, in Deen of Islam, a husband may hand over the right of this called may hand over the right of divorce to a woman. Right? This is not just me saying this in case somebody here is very hardcore orthodox and thinks I'm taking a Martha Jamufta Ashik Allah has written this position. All of the ulama will have to acknowledge this as reality. Whether it's preferred or not is a separate thing. And this ayah is viewed as that it's preferred. So the two options. One is that the husband gives the right to the wife and that she can actually issue a divorce, right? That she can decide whether she wishes to be divorced. Or he can retain the right himself and ask her, would you like me to divorce you or not? This is what the Sunnah, what, this is what Allah Sponsor trained the Prophet, told the Prophet to do, that this is what the Prophet did. He retained the right himself. He didn't give them the right. He retained the right, but he asked them, that what is it that you would want me to do? Right. By the way, both methods are there in Sharia, but this method may be preferred. Right. That the husband, especially if the husband has hikmah, like the Prophet has the hilm, has the sabr, has those akhlaq, then that uh, devastating act, which is known as divorce, it is better that that remain in the ikhtiyar of people who have sabr and zarf and hilm. Next verses, again, 32 and 33 and 34, Allah Ta'ala addresses the Mahatami directly, Ya Nasan Nabiya, That, O oh, women of the Prophet, O oh, wives of Allah, you are not like any other women. Because, because your fadila and your distinctions that you're married to the Prophet, So your real fadila is your taqwa. So if you fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Right, and the way to be true to your mansab and to be true to your fadila is to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then there are now some adab that Allah Ta'ala is going to mention here on with that preserved taqwa. So understand clearly that what is about to come is certainly further for Umahata Mu'minin. But it's highly recommended for all other women because generally it is mentioned as the way a woman can stay within taqwa. For the Umahatu Mu'minin, they must make use of these asbab. 
and for any other mu'mina, she should make use of these asbab, highly recommended for her, because it will also keep her inside taqwa. Alright, what is that? Number one, that you should Literally it means you should not lower your speech, you should not be submissive in speech, it means you should not speak in a soft, alluring tone. Why? That because maybe that person in whose heart is some disease and sickness should be enticed and attracted towards you. They may conceive some desire towards you. And if you do have to speak, you should speak a colon ma'roof, you should speak as and when needed, you should speak in an appropriate and a befitting way, you should speak in a civil tone, not an alluring tone, not an overly sweet tone, not in a rude tone, you should speak in a civil tone, colon ma'rufa. This is the first thing that Allah subhanahu wa is mentioning. Now this is the ayah that now we should think, that these are ummahat mu'mineen, the most purest women ever. Who was on the other side, the male sahaba, the most after the Anbiya, the purest men ever. Allah Ta'ala is saying if the purest women and the purest men engage just in talking, but in that talking they're soft in their tone and they're engaging in conversation, that could lead to desire. So why do we think that we can engage in alluring and soft, attractive conversation with others and that it won't lead to desire? So a person has to maintain a professional tone, a civil tone. Okay, so this was the first part over here that they should speak to one another, speak to the men. If they have to speak to strangers, they should speak in a professional tone, right? This is one reason why also women are not in Deen of Islam meant to be overly exposed in public roles and public service which require extensive interaction and conversation with men. Okay, this is also the reason why women are not permitted to give adhan. This is the reason why in Hajj, Labayk, Allahumma Labayk, the women are supposed to say quietly. So even then, so this is why people say, Niyat kharab niyat. Obviously if a woman was to give adhan, her niyat would not be wrong. So it's not just about niyyah. Allah Ta'ala look at the attention, intentions before the act, but He also looks at possible consequences and repercussions of the act. So even if a woman's intention is pure, she's still supposed to be careful. Right? Especially when it comes to public, which is any and everyone. So if you're sitting on the plane and saying, Labayk, the Talbi out loud, any and everyone is next to you, right? They're public people, and they're not people who you know or you associate with, or people who are in your circle. So all of this, there's certain teachings in our deen, right? And this is also, by the way, and I should make this clear, that even if something has benefit, doesn't mean it's allowed in Sharia. This is why also in Sharia it's not allowed for a woman, a woman's lectures, a woman's tafsir and Qur'an to be put on the internet or for cassettes to be made of that, because men may listen to that. And, if she, and in her lecture, she should when she's lecturing to women, use her voice passionately or compassionately or she may emotionally speak about passages in Quran when she's teaching. If those lectures are made available to the public, i.e. to men also, then it would be a violation of this ayah. Unless that woman, she thinks she can start making adhan and she makes dilbiya out loud. So for the same reason she doesn't do those things out loud, for the same reason her voice is not meant to be recorded. 
And that's been a very unfortunate thing that the pious women and alimas of this ummah, they have followed this ruling. But because of that they don't have big YouTube videos of themselves and all these CDs and tapes of themselves and websites with their audio on it because they're following the ruling of Islam. And other women who have not followed that ruling of Islam, they have gained more widespread currency. But actually that's not what the, the, what the teaching of the deen has told them to do. Second, Now again, required for the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen but recommended for others whenever possible. Remain in your homes. Remain in your homes. That you should not make a display of yourselves as the people in Jahiliyyah used to display themselves. Don't show off in public as one done in the time of ignorance. What does this mean, right? So this is that concept of what people in Urdu call quote-unquote char divari parda. Now just these words instill fear in people's hearts. And this can almost to say this sentence in Urdu is almost like a sin now. To say the word char divari parda and people say where are you living? And you're self-sustaining women doctors and women nurses and women teachers and what's the matter with you, right? So let me explain, first of all, that we're talking about Qur'an al-Karim. And in Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen that they should remain within their homes. Alright. Put it this way. One should just think this way. Just try to think about your deen. Now think that my deen is such that my Allah ta'ala in Qur'an tells the greatest of women that they should... They can speak, and there's another ayah where Allah Ta'ala says, Waral hajab, they should speak behind a curtain. So, Mahatma Mu'mineen, when they used to teach male Sahaba Ikram, Umm Aisha would narrate hadith to male Sahaba, they should do that behind a curtain and in a professional tone. And otherwise, they should by and large remain in their homes. Right? Why would my deen say that to the wives of the Prophet? That's the question people should ask. What is the broader philosophy? People love to talk about the spirit of Islam, right? What is the broader philosophy? And we should look at the spirit and not look at the letter. Okay, fine. What is the spirit behind this ruling? Just answer that question. What is the spirit behind this ruling? And then see that if you should apply that spirit to yourself. Uh, yes, no doubt, we live in a day and age where women go to school, women go to universities, those universities are co-ed, then women become doctors and they work in hospitals, those hospitals are co-ed, right? So, doing amal on this is only, there's only a handful of women who are basically the wives of the mothers of teachers who live in these campuses, uh, isolated islands uh, of deen in oceans of ignorance, right? Who can still do amal on this? But that doesn't mean that you remove it from your concept of deen. Always remember, one is your understanding of deen and one is your practice of deen. If you're not practicing something in deen, doesn't mean that you are entitled to remove that concept from the understanding of deen itself. That concept of women remaining in their homes to a large extent is still there in deen. So let's try to, what, how much could we do in the name of practicality and pragmatism? So number one, I would say that for a woman who wants to learn her deen, if she cannot learn her deen in her own home, she will be allowed to leave her home to learn her deen. That's the maybe we can allow, right? But obviously when she leaves her home, she'll have to wear hijab, she'll have to leave her home with the proper covering, in the proper decorum, in the proper manner. Right? It doesn't mean that Islam is opposed to house arrest on every single woman and for every single thing. 
if there is a woman who has to pick up her children from school, right? Because maybe she cannot afford a driver, not everybody can afford a driver, right? And many men cannot always take off time from work to go pick up the children. So that may be another possibility. But then again, she will leave home in a certain decorum, right? If there's a etc etc right if there's a woman who has to go and buy clothing but yes I will tell you there are some ulama who are so strict uh, on this ruling that literally they don't think women can even leave their home for picking children from school or they don't think women can leave their home to learn or study deen or they don't think women can leave their home to even buy clothing they say the cloth seller should come to the home and he should bring the cloth and the women should purchase their own that's how the queens used to be I mean, the queens would just sit in their palace, right? You cannot imagine a queen going shopping in the bazaar, right? The queen sits in the palace, everybody comes to her, right? And so, in that sense, that concept can be there, but it may, it's really not, it's not going to be practicable for most of you, right? So, put it this way. You can't be neither here nor there. So I will show you a way to have your cake and eat it too. And that is what we did in Surah Nur. And that's why Allah Ta'ala is about to tell this as well, although I did it for you then in Surah Al-Zahab, Allah Ta'ala is going to mention Jalabib. So clearly women are leaving their homes, right? When Allah Ta'ala is going to talk about his coming. Uh, and I did it for you already when we did Surah Nur. So it means very simple. Either It's very simple. Either a woman stays in her home, or she leaves her home observing proper parda. That's simple. What you can't do is that, no, I don't stay in my home, and nor do I do proper parda when I leave the home. That, there's no scope we can make for that for you. Even if we understand you're a wonderful person, even if we acknowledge your heart is modest, even if we accept that you don't have any lewd desires, even if we accept all of that, there's no Quranic basis that we can give for that way of life. Either you remain in the home or you leave the home, you're out of the home. But when you're out of the home, you have proper parta. That's the only way that the Quran mentions. And that's why you will see shortly in Surah Al-Azab, Allah Ta'ala mentions that. So the ayat about hijab and khimar and jalabib are clear that women are going to be leaving their homes, right? It's clear and sahabiyah did leave their homes. It's not as if sahabiyah were always only in their homes. Umahat and were almost only in their homes. But what you see is the Sahabiyat never left their home without proper hijab. And that is something that's doable and that I already explained at length when we did Surah Nur. Alright? Next thing Allah Ta'ala enjoins upon them, although this is something that is arm for everyone, Akimna Salatu Atina Zakata, that you should pray salah, you should offer zakah, wa and you should obey Allah Ta'ala and the Prophet. Now here obviously this is something that every Muslim has to do, but Allah is making it clear for all of history that don't think the Umahat al-Mu'mineen reach some special rank where they don't have to do these things, right? Like there are some people, there's some weird people in Pakistan who think like that. I met a very educated person, I can't take his name. This was his philosophy. He literally thought, I'm too spiritual to pray. This is what his philosophy was. He says there's no need to pray. He says, namaz aam logon kaliya hai. Yes, he's a very educated person, famous person in this country. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I, I didn't even know. I was I was left dumbfounded how to address this attitude, right? 
So Allah SWT making clear in Quran that no, that's not an attitude because if that was there for anyone then the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen would have been given such an exemption. So everybody has to pay their, pray their salah, everybody has to pay their zakah, everybody has to obey Allah Ta'ala in every injunction of Sharia revealed in Quran. Everybody has to obey the Messenger of Allah SWT in every injunction of Sharia mentioned in the Sunnah. إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيُذْهِبَ أَنْكُمَ الرِّجْسَ And Allah SWT wants to rid you of all impurity. Ahlul Bayt, O Ahlul Bayt. This is another clear proof in Quran that Ahlul Bayt is not confined just to Sayyidina Fatima and Sayyidina Hassan and Hussein. Even though we love them, we love all Sahab and Sabiyat, but here clear Allah Ta'ala in Quran is using the word Ahlul Bayt clearly for Nisa and Nabi, for Ummahat Mu'mineen, for all of the wives of the Prophet. Yes, sometimes there's one hadith where the Prophet once he was sitting with Sayyidina Ali, Sayyidina Fatima, Sayyidina Hassan, Sayyidina Hussain, and he addressed him and said that you are my Ahlul Bayt. That he meant literally that you are my one daughter who has survived. All the other daughters of the Prophet, Ummah Kuthum, Zainab and Ruqayr, they died in the lifetime of the Prophet. Many people don't even know that. The Prophet had four daughters. Three died in his lifetime while he was alive. Only Fatima outlived him and even then she joined him shortly thereafter. So when the Prophet was sitting with her, yes, he was he had no sons, his three daughters had passed away, he was sitting with his one daughter, right? So yes, he said that as an expression of love to her and he was correct in saying that and she is Ahlul Bayt but she is not alone in being Ahlul Bayt and the Quran makes it clear that all the Ummahat, I mean in all of the family of the Prophet is the family of the Prophet. It's a very simple thing rationally. All of his family was his family. Does that sentence make sense to you? Or no, just one of his daughters was his family. Does that make sense to you? Right? So this is, it's, it's, it's a foul allegation against Quran to suggest that no, there's one particular group and they and they alone are Ahlul Bayt. Allah Ta'ala has mentioned this. وَيُطَحِّرُكُمْ تَثْهِرًا And Allah Ta'ala wants to purify you thoroughly. What does it mean? Allah Ta'ala is saying in Quran, He wants to bestow upon the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen the highest daraja, the highest rank. And when you're in your homes, you should remember and recite Mina'at life from the verses of Allah Ta'ala's revelation. Wal-Hikmah. What does Hikmah mean? Hikmah means the Hadith. That you should remember the sayings of your beloved husband. And that's why many Sahabiyat became great narrators of Hadith. And Ummahat al-Mu'mineen, she narrated thousands of Hadith to Sahab and Tabin. So this Ummahat al-Mu'mineen had another duty. They were going to be the ones who observed the inner personal life of the Prophet ﷺ. And he many times shared things with them. And they had to remember that and remind that with one another. So that when the Prophet passes away, they can make sure that that ilm is preserved. That that knowledge is archived and transmitted and is preserved in this Ummah. Last Allah Ta'ala says in Allah Hakana Latifan Khabira indeed Allah Spatal is acutely aware. This I explained to you the translation of Latifan Khabir yesterday or day before. Allah Spatala is acutely aware of each and every single thing that a person does. Alright. Verse number 35. This ayah itself, just this one ayah, is the subject of a whole series of talks by our own Ustaz and Shaykh. You can listen to that online on the web. Each 
word is a separate bayan in of itself in a muslimin wal muslimat let me explain actually what happened that uh, umm salma radhiyallahu she was asked about some a question a question very much because you know the women of today the women of yesterday they have the same questions the same ideas so she asked about so salam that oh messenger of allah men are often mentioned in the quran but women are not what she was thinking was the grammar that the masculine plural is used mu'minin but where is the word mu'minat by an arabic grammar the masculine plural includes the feminine it's not exclusive whereas the feminine plural is exclusively for feminine but still she asked this question so then uh, in a hadith in tirmidhi when allah ta'ala revealed this verse innal muslimina wal muslimati wal mu'minina wal mu'minati wal qanitina wal qanitati was sadiqina was sadiqati was sabirina was sabirat wal khashiyina wal khashiyati wal mutasaddiqina wal mutasaddiqati was sa'imina was sa'imat wal hafidina furujuhum wal hafidati was zakirina allaha kathira was zakirat this is the characteristics of the believers. Sifati mu'minana. In one ayah in Quran al-Kareem, we have been given a litmus test. Who is a mu'min? Who is a mu'mina? So the first thing, muslimin and mu'minin. Like I said, each, each one of these words is a whole lecture and bayan in of itself. Muslimin and muslimat. Muslim, when it appears with, let me explain this to you. Many times the word Islam and Iman are used interchangeably, synonymously. However, when they appear together in one ayah, then there is a contrast, there is a nuance, and there are difference of meanings. The best way we can explain to that to you in English is Al-Muslimin is those who have conformed their outward form to the deen of Islam. Those who are submitting in obedience to the commandments, the ahkam of sharia. So the male belie- males who are submitting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the females who submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then, well, mu'minin wal mu'minat. So mu'min here means and those who believe deeply in their heart. Those who have heartfelt yaqeen and conviction. So the men who have heartfelt yaqeen and conviction in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the women who have heartfelt yaqeen and conviction in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then, qanitin. Qanitin means, you could say in English, it's those who are devout. Or, devout. Those who are devout. Uh, you could also say those who are truthful. That could be another way. Those who are sincere. This has many senses to it that no single English word can combine. But, uh, it, it's basically it's referring to ikhlas, right? That in qawl and amal, and what they say and what they do, they're true, uh, they are sincere to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That they do things for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they're for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And they're passionate about it. They're passionate in their Islam and their iman. So you're kind of moving up grades. They're passionate about it, sincere about it, genuine about it, devout about their Islam and iman. Next is Sadiqin and Sadiqat. So Sidq, Sidq here means those who are truthful. The ones who are true. Uh, and then again, you can all understand what that means. Uh, that they are true in everything that they do. They are true to themselves, true to their deen, true to their Prophet true to their Rabb, true to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, true to their fellow mu'mineen and mu'minat. They are people of Sidq. Next word that comes is Sabirin and Sabirat. So Sabirin means those who are patient, steadfast and constant. Number one, Sabr means patience. The, there are four meanings of Sabr. 
First is that sabr that most of us normally think. Sabr means is that when any hardship afflicts you, you are patient in that time of difficulty and adversity. Second meaning of sabr would be in English we would call perseverance. That in good times or in bad times you persevere and remain steadfast on your deen. So like a type of istikama. Third meaning of sabr is what in English you would call endurance. So patience, perseverance, endurance, right? This is also related to your hilm, your kuwatim bardasht, that you have sabr, you can absorb things without reacting. You can absorb negative circumstances without reacting. You can absorb people's negative comments without reacting. You're a person of endurance. And the fourth meaning of sabr, masbir nafsaka, is that you control your nafs. You control your nafs. That your nafs wants to do certain passions and desires and you have so it's self-control. So patience, perseverance, endurance and self-control. If you want four English words, single English words for the four meanings of sabr, the fourth one is self-control. Patience, perseverance, endurance and self-control. So those men who have those four things, sabirin, and the women who have those four things, sabirat. Next quality is Khashi'in wal Khashi'at This is humble The men who, are humili- who have humility and the women who have humility Humility is actually something that is both in the batin and the dahir Asalan, it's something to do with the heart That a person's heart is humble, a person's heart is penitent, a person's heart is soft But it also extends to one's limbs, the way one walks, the way one talks, the way one acts, the way one interacts all of that is covered with this khashin. Whether they're humbled before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when they pray salah, whether they're humbled before the commandments of Allah ta'ala, they always obey, whether they're humbled before the sunnah of Sayyidina Sunnah, they always follow it, whether they have humility in terms of their interpersonal relations, i.e. an absence of arrogance, pride and conceit and vanity, all of that is meant here that they are khashin and khashiat. Then next word is al-mutasaddikin wal-mutasaddikat because sadiqin means to be true, mutasaddikin means those who give sadaqah. So charitable men, men who give charity, who are charitable, and women who give charity, this is the next attribute here. This means they spend on zakah, they spend on nafil sadaqah, they give karze hasna, they give wasiyah, they help the poor, the orphan, the relatives, the needy, the traveler who is in need, they spend on the deen, they give sadaqah jariyah, they are the sadiq, mutasaddikin and mutasaddikat. So the men who give charity and the women who give charity. Then which we are all going through in these days. As-sa'imin was sa'imat. Right? The men who fast and the women who fast. So this is first and foremost referring to the fast of this month of Ramadan. Right? And this you all remember. La'allakum tattakun. That the whole purpose of the fasting is so that a person can acquire taqwa. The next is the men who are chaste. And women who are chaste literally means in the men who guard their and the women who guard themselves it means those men who preserve their chastity and the women who preserve their chastity the men who guard and preserve their chastity and the women who guard and preserve their chastity this is something that we talked about in detail in Surah Nur alright and then last thing Allah Subhanahu mentions and those women who remember Allah Ta'ala abundantly, and the, the men who remember Allah Ta'ala abundantly, and the women who remember Allah Ta'ala abundantly. 
those of you who know Arabic grammar, the kathiran is there with dhakirat, it is mazuf, it is understood to be there because of the ataf. So it means it's bazakirin Allah kathira with dhakirat Allah kathira. Those men who remember Allah Ta'ala abundantly and women who remember Allah Ta'ala abundantly. Uh, here we've talked to you many times about dhikr and the importance of dhikr. And a little bit, just a little bit later in Surah Allah Zahab will get a chance inshallah to talk to you again about zikr in verses 41 onwards major thing to realize from this ayah of Quran is that women have to adorn themselves with as much of the sifat of iman as a man does so all of these things sabr, sidq, sadqa, khushu zikr all of this is not just for the men and so just like every man should make an intention, Allah I want to be amongst the sabirin, I want to be amongst the zakirin, and I need to put myself through that training and education that will make me like that, every woman should also make the same intention that she wants to be amongst the sabirat, amongst the zakirat, kanitat, sadiqat, etc. And that she wants to put herself through every type of training and education that will make her from that. That is the main significance of this ayah that in terms of and that is the real gender equality in our deen in terms of working for deen and acquiring sifat mu'minana men or women are equal in terms of ability to get jannatul firdos men or women are equal so that's the real equality that in terms of developing and knowledge and developing spirituality men and women are equal in Islam now yes certain public roles in society Allah Ta'ala may have structured differently but that's all about this world and the world is just fleeting in terms of akhirah and the real thing in akhirah is the person's amal their ilm their ikhlas their dhikr their taqwa men and women are on the level playing field a woman can get as much sabr as a man can a woman can be as much a zakira as a man can be a zakir a woman can be in the highest level of genital for those as the men may be right so that's the real message of this ayah. It shows the real message of gender equality, which in a deen is viewed on the basis of spirituality and spiritual attainment. Verse 36, another very important ayah of Quran al-Kareem. وَمَا كَانَ لِمُؤْمِنٍ وَلَا مُؤْمِنَةٍ إِذَا قَدَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَمْرًا أَنْ يَكُنُ لَهُمُ الْخِيَرًا That it did not befit any male believer or any female believer that once Allah Ta'ala or his messenger have decreed and decided on any matter and affair that they should have any khira, they should have any choice left in the matter. There is no ikhtiyar left whatsoever min amrihim in their affair once Allah Ta'ala or the Prophet has decided it. It means that if the Quran says anything about it, the Hadith says anything about it, then we lose our options. Our options are finished now. There is no choice left up to us anymore and any person who doesn't realize that and exercises their free will on earth to disobey Allah or his messenger that indeed such a person has gone astray very far and wide has gone wide astray right so this is a very important ayah of Quran al-Karim so second thing here again Allah said mu'min and mu'mina right so the same thing is true for the women and men are equally liable to follow the injunctions of Quran and commandments of the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Then from verses 37 onwards, Allah Subhanahu is going to mention the story of Sayyidina Zayd, which I did for you very briefly. Just so you know that this was in the pre-Islamic era, this was an era of slavery. And how did slavery happen then? Many times it happened through kidnapping. 
So once Sayyidina Zaid was a small boy and he was traveling with his mother to visit his grandparents. And the mother was traveling to visit her own parents, right? And he was traveling with her. So he was traveling with his mother to visit her parents and they were attacked by bandits and they kidnapped this young boy Zaid and then they put him in the slave trade. Similar, you have crazy things today which they call human trafficking. It's a new word they came up for traffic. Human trafficking, right? People who are kidnapped and then sold into sometime twisted and abominable types of slavery. So Saint, I mean, in, not that, but Sayyidina Zaid was kidnapped as a boy and he was then sold off as a slave. Now, he had a very good fortune that a person by the name of Hakim, who later became a Muslim also, he bought Zaid as a slave and gave him as a gift to his aunt, who he felt needed khidmah. And what was the name of that aunt? Khadija anha. So Khadija got a gift, right, from her nephew, the slave whose name is Zaid. Okay, and he paid 400 dirhams for Zaid. So when, when Umm Khadija, then she married the Prophet so she gave Zaid, she presented him as a gift for her husband. Sayyidina Rasulullah adopted him and said, well I keep him rather as my son instead of as a slave. And then came that whole incident that we did earlier, that you cannot call him uh, Zaid ibn Muhammad, but you should call him, you have to call him by his father's name. So some people have said that Allah Ta'ala, here I'll explain that when we do that. Next thing that happened was Zaid's father, obviously, had been searching for his son who was kidnapped into slavery for years. And finally, he discovered once this happened, and Sayyidina Zaid began, then word spread, and then it must have reached his town. So he learned that his son was abducted and sold as a slave in Makkah Makarama, and now ended up in the house of the Prophet. So he showed up in Makkah Makarama, and he approached the Prophet and said that he wanted to purchase his son's freedom. So the Prophet said, No, you don't have to give me any money, the boy is free to go with you if he so wishes. <laughs> If he so wishes, right? So first the father got very happy that, you know, such a nice person is not asking me to pay for it because otherwise, you know, you've paid for the slave so I would have to buy him back from you. So then they called Zaid, but then the Muslim asked Zaid that do you recognize these people? And he said, yes, this is my father and that's my uncle. So the Muslim said, okay, you know them and you know me and you're free to choose where you'd like to go. So much to the father's surprise, Sayyidina Zayd said that I would rather choose to stay here with you than go back with my own father. Allahu Akbar. And this, by the way, all of this is before the Prophet became a Nabi. That's the type of the person of Prophet. This is before he was 40, before Zuhur, and before Ikram, this made a bikul All of this is before that. Before that. So he said, I would rather stay with my master, my Prophet, right? And then meant some ulama have said, in fact, when the Prophet uh, came back the first time so the first woman who accepted Imam that everybody has agreed is Umm Mu'mineen Khadija Radanna and different ulama some say Sayyidina Zaid was the first man to accept Islam some say Sayyidina Abu Bakr some say Sayyidina Ali these are the three aqwal so he was a member of the household Sayyidina Zaid later on then Sayyidina Susam after he became a Nabi then he freed Sayyidina Zaid because the Deen of Islam encourages freeing slavery then as a free man but he was a former slave but a free person then the Prophet wanted to arrange his marriage also and who did the Prophet arrange his marriage with? Uh, the, the Prophet's own cousin the daughter of his aunt Sayyidina Zainab bin Tijash now because the Prophet suggested it 
her and her husband, her, her and her brother, accepted the proposal, but initially they didn't want to because they thought that there wouldn't be social compatibility, that he's a former slave and she's from the tribe of Quraysh. She's also from, uh, she was his cousin, supposed cousin, she's from the Quraysh. Some commentators say that this verse that was revealed, verse 36, was even about her, that when the Prophet, Allah Ta'ala's Messenger, decided something, there's no choice left in the matter. Allah Qualam, that's not something that we know for sure. Khair, so then she married uh, Sayyidina Zayd Anhu. But then after they were married, uh, they were not able to get along, let's put it that way. For whatever reason, and we don't know the details of that, or I can't claim to know the details of that. Uh, and then what happened was that Sayyidina Zayd, he came to the Prophet as his Nabi, and he said that you know, things aren't going well. In that case, the Prophet told him that you should keep trying to work on it, right? Keep trying to work on the marriage. So this is what Allah SWT then refers to in the next verse, the statement of the Prophet to Zayd. Why is that? Because actually Allah Ta'ala had already revealed to the Prophet that Sayyidina Zainab is going to be your wife. So, but the Prophet was too embarrassed to say that to Zayd. And then the Prophet dealt with him the way he normally would and he would tell any man that you should try to stay with your wife and make amends and make up your other wife. So he just said that to him. So that Allah Ta'ala revealed in verse 37 that when you said to the one of whom Allah Ta'ala has bestowed his grace. So a lot of ishara when you when you said to the one who Allah Ta'ala had blessed in favor when you said to Zayd, right? So first year Allah Ta'ala is showing that Allah Ta'ala is happy with Zayd. It's not that the divorce is happening because Allah Ta'ala is upset with Zayd. Allah Ta'ala is happy with Sayyidina Zayd Radatana. But you told them Prophet that you should keep your wife. You should keep your wife. And you should be have taqwa for Allah You should fear Allah and be conscious of him. So then the, Allah Ta'ala tells the Prophet openly in the Quran, which the Prophet has to recite to everyone, that you have concealed to yourself, kept to yourself what Allah Ta'ala would reveal. Why? As you feared the people with nas because you were afraid of the people. And then Allah Ta'ala says, Wallahu ahakku an taqshahu that Allah Ta'ala is more worthy and more deserving of your fear. What does it mean that because remember up to this point people had thought that if you have an adopted son and he marries someone, that if they end up getting divorced you can never marry them. So the Prophet was a little bit uneasy and that Allah Ta'ala has revealed to him that he's going to marry Zayd. So he had two uneasinesses. First, that this divorce is going to take place. And second, uneasiness that I'm going to marry the woman. But all the Arabs think that that's not the appropriate thing to do. Right? So here Allah Subhanahu if you will lightly chastises or reprimand the Prophet in this ayah. So you shouldn't have told Zayd when he came to just you. should have told him that Allah has revealed to me actually she's going to become my wife and maybe that's why you're not getting along. Actually, this is just part of Allah's plan. Right? And second, you shouldn't have any fear about the people and don't worry what they will say. Now, Prophet's fear about the people was not that he cared at all what people thought of him personally, but he was worried it would keep people from accepting Imam. His greatest desire, as any Nabi's desire, was that as many people as possible should accept Imam. And this could be a thing that they could use against him. It may generally, I'm not generally, but it would make someone 
question his prophethood and maybe not accept iman and it would also be something that the mushrikeen and enemies of Islam could use to poison him, stain his reputation and then other people may not accept iman so he was more worried about that he was looking at that this also then is an indication to us that even if a person today is engaged in khidmat of deen but, and they want to do something which is actually haq, which is completely well within their right and even is something that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then question raised by the ulama should they do it anyway and not worry what people would think because it may harm the khidmat of deen some ulama based on this passage have said yes they should go ahead and do it because Allah ta'ala has made it permissible for them others have said that no if it's just permissible they should abstain but if it's something that is preferable that Allah ta'ala has preferred for them then they should go ahead and do it because they have to individually do what Allah ta'ala prefers for them while doing their khidmat of deen so there's a very, it's, this, I mean that's a whole topic, I can't do that for you now, but the difference between permissibility and preferability in Islam is something you really have to keep your pulse on. Because there's some things that are preferable and some things that are permissible. And the permissible, and our mistake is that we leave the preferable many times, thinking it's just preferable. Actually what we're supposed to do is leave the permissible many times, thinking that it's just permissible. Right? So for Sayyidina Rasulullah in this case it's not permissible, it's preferable. In fact, it's required for him to marry her. So there's no question that if something is required in deen, then you should worry about if I do that requirement, what people will think. Again, the Prophet was doing that for that particular reason, which was part of his compassionate nabuwa, which is just part of him being Rahmatullah Alameen. Okay, now here comes this next passage that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said this that you should have uh, Allah ta'ala is more worthy of being feared then what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in Quran فَلَمَّا كَذَا زَيْدٌ مِّنْهَا وَطْرًا زَوَّجْنَاكَهَا لَكَيْ لَا يَكُونَ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ حَرَجٌ فِي أَزْوَاجِ أَدْئِيَائِهِمْ إِذَا Okay This First of all, فَلَمَّا كَذَا زَيْد Zayd is the only Sahaba who is mentioned by name in Qur'an. And this was a big honor for him that my name has come in Qur'an al-Karim. And the Mufassirin write that Allah Ta'ala did this because he used to be so happy that the Prophet's name was attached to him. That everybody called him Zayd ibn Muhammad, Zayd ibn Muhammad. And Allah Ta'ala revealed the ruling that you can't call him that. So he had a sadness in his heart that he enjoyed that his name was coupled with the name of the Prophet So to remove that sadness, Allah Ta'ala then took his name in Qur'an. Look how merciful Allah Ta'ala is, how much Allah Ta'ala loves these Sahaba that he always wants to keep their hearts happy in every single way. And Sayyidina Zayd used to tell people this, he used to always tell people that my name is in Qur'an. <laughs> Who are you messing with? Right? <laughs> he would always talk like that, he would always be so happy that his name was in Qur'an al-Kareem. So Allah Ta'ala says here, so the translation is that when Zayd, mm, when Zayd had, you can just say divorced her, I mean literally it means when Zayd had finished, you know, when his term had expired with her, uh, when he divorced her, then Allah Ta'ala says, we married her to you. So now here Zayd, Zayd, she also used to say this, meaning that you are all people who, your nikah was done in this world and my nikah was read by Allah Ta'ala in Qur'an because the words Allah Ta'ala used again uh, 
ذوبجنات in her case. And then Allah Ta'ala mentions here that this was also done so that the Mu'mineen would not have any worry or fear about marrying the divorcees of their, I mean ex-wives of their adopted sons uh, and the order of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And indeed Allah Ta'ala's decree came to be and was put into effect. And there is no taboo or constraint on the Prophet in regard to in that which Allah has ordained for him. And thus was the practice of Allah and this was the way of Allah amongst those who passed before. And indeed, and Allah's command is always an ordained decree, it's a determined affair, it will always happen. And those who propagate and deliver the messages of Allah in such a state that they remain in humble fear of Him. And they don't fear anyone except for Allah Then Allah is sufficient for those who take reckoning Allah is sufficient to keep account. Alright. Next ayah, very important. Ayah of Quran al-Kareem. Here in this last ayah, verses 30. A thirty nine, Allah Ta'ala was exonerating the Prophet that you know, declaring his innocence that there's absolutely nothing wrong in any way whatsoever in marrying the divorcee, yani the ex wife of your adopted son. Sayyidina Zayd just so you know, he was martyred in the Battle of Mota in the eighth year after Hijrah when he was fifty five years of age and he was the Emir of that army. Okay, verse 40. Ma kana a'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem bismillahirrahmanirrahim ma kana muhammadun aba'a ahadin min rijalikum walakin rasulullahi wa khatiman nabiyyin wa kana Allahu bi kulli shay'in adima. This is one of the most important ayat in Quran al-Karim and this ayah in of itself is absolutely sufficient to establish the absolute un Shakeable reality that Sayyidina Rasulullah is the last and final prophet and messenger on every sense of the word. First thing Allah Ta'ala said is that He is not the father of any of you. What does it mean again? There were no sons, and yes, the Prophet had four daughters, but that's why they use the word Rijal, that He is not. Mirijalakum, He is not the father of any men from any of you. However, although he's not the biological father, he is the spiritual father of each and every one of his ummah. And as Allah subhanahu wa mentioned, and we did this just this morning, today in Surah Saba, which is surah, the next surah, which is coming, Surah 34, verse 28. What did Allah subhanahu wa say there? وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا كَافَةً لِلنَّاسِ that we have not sent you except as absolutely sufficient for the nas, for the entire humanity. 
for all of humanity. Bashira wa Nadira and your bear glad tidings and a warner. And the vast majority don't know. So this ayah in Surah Saba also makes it clear that not only is the Prophet the last and final Prophet and Messenger as mentioned here in Surah Al-Azab, but his risala, his teachings of Prophethood and Messenger are kafatan, are sufficient for all of humanity. What does that mean? That you will never, there will never ever be any need for a Nabi, another Nabi to come after him. So first thing you should realize is that there have been many people who have claimed prophethood after the Prophet ﷺ. However, in all of the history of humanity, no one has ever been as devastating as Mirza Ghulam Qadiani. One reason is that no previous Nabi really has gained any other following. The closest to him would be Bahauddin, who made the Baha'i faith. He also had some following in the people Baha'is all over the world. But the difference there was that at least he was honest and he realized that when I claim to be a prophet, that means I've started a new religion. And so he didn't claim they were Muslims. The problem with Mirza Ghulam Qadiani is that he, not only did he claim prophecy, but he claimed that he was Muslim. And what does that mean? He's trying to redefine what Islam is. And that is why the Qadiani group is not acceptable. Now there are a handful of you here earlier in the morning when I explained this because the vast majority of you were, uh, didn't come for that extra session, which is okay, because you're fasting. I'm fasting, but you know, you're also fasting. And so it's, <laughs> right, but so I'll have to repeat, uh, this in detail. This is a very important thing, right? Uh, here, let me first explain what's in Quran, and then I'll explain to you this whole issue of the Qadianis. So first, this word Khatam and Nabin. So what does the word Khatam mean, right? So yes, fine, khatam means seal, right? But there's a reason, now this is the feature of Arabic language, that when you have a root, multiple words that emanate from the same root have interrelated meanings. So what is the root here? Khatamim. So khatam and khatam can also mean seal. Khatim, khatima can also mean end or last or final, right? So both nuances are there, irrespective of whatever form, derived form you use, when the root word is there, khatamim, it means seal in the sense of the seal of finality. It means when you seal something, it's final. Like when a document is written and then you seal and stamp it, it means now it is finalized. That's it. You can never revoke it. You can never amend it. You can never abrogate it. It is now sealed. So it is in that sense that there's no one deception that Mirza Ghulam Qadiani used and other people have been like him in the sense that they use Arabic language to mislead people. Many times Mr. Ghamdi does the same thing. He uses a particular thing in Arabic language and people think, oh, he's speaking on the basis of Arabic or he's quoting some pre-Islamic Arabic poetry to us and it must be what he is saying is correct, right? No, language has to be understood by the people who are scholars in that language. You cannot just pick something up and twist it. I mean, what type of example can I give you um, in English? If somebody asks you that I want you to chair the meeting tomorrow, and what do you do tomorrow in the conference room? You go and you put a chair and you go back to your office. Right? Now, yes, technically, if you don't know, let's say you don't know anything. Let's say you're completely ignorant about life and everything in it. 
and I came to you and said I'm a professor, professor of English and actually the word chair in the English language actually means chair, the object, and it doesn't mean to preside over. So actually I offer you this interpretation that to chair a meeting means just to put a chair in the conference room. You wouldn't know any better. you say, wow, he's talking on the basis of English language and he's quoting linguistics and he's saying the real meaning of chair is the object. But if you have even a drop of common sense, you would realize that to chair a meeting could never mean that. To put the chair in the room, that could never be called chair of the meeting. So just like that, Khatam al Nabin can never ever mean, right? That he was just a seal on prophethood, but there can still be prophets after him. It doesn't really mean last, right? No, Khatam al Nabin means he is the seal of the finality and the last and final prophet and messenger in every single way. Alright, so that was one comment on this uh, word in Quran al Karim. Then comes, right, uh, because if you look at it, really, I mean, the Baha'i faith is almost negligent, right? So on earth right now, there's only really one community who believes in a prophet after the Prophet and that is the Qadianis. So this is one, several things we normally try to explain to people. Number one, taking an academically critical stance and taking a theological stance against someone does not necessarily mean you are condoning violence against anyone. This is another thing the so-called liberal crowd has spread this propaganda. They have put you in such a state of fear that you cannot even say a word against the religion of Kalyanism. That's what I'm talking about. You cannot speak out against the Kalyani religion because if you say one word, you will be labeled as intolerant and illiberal and as if you're trying to advocate that they should all be killed. So that's the first thing I want to erase from your mind. No, we can speak in an academic way about theological differences without anybody trying to impute to us any violent agenda. Alright? For example, if I was to say to you that Barack Obama is a non-Muslim, can you say that because I say that I'm suggesting he should be killed? Just because I say that, Barack Obama is a non-Muslim. Okay, how about if I tell you that Kamaluddin Ahmad is a non-Hindu? You say he's just making a statement based on a theological reality, just saying that there's no, there's no suggestion of violence in any way. He's just talking about somebody's religion. People are what they are. Somebody's a Christian, somebody's a Jew, somebody's a Muslim, somebody's a Hindu, somebody's a Buddhist, somebody's a Qadiani. A Buddhist is a non-Muslim, a Hindu is a non-Muslim, a Christian is a non-Muslim, a Jew is a non-Muslim, a Qadiani is a non-Muslim. It's that simple. There's not, nobody saying to do anything. Before I would say it at the end, let me say it to you up front, so you should realize what I'm trying to say. If anyone bombs a Qadiani house of worship in Lahore, I say in Islam that that act of bombing the Qadiani house of worship is absolutely haram, and if you ever catch the people who bomb their house of worship, they will be punished for murder. I tell that to you. But I will still tell you that the Gadiani is not a Muslim. I cannot, because of somebody being a victim of murder, I cannot bestow, confer the status of Muslim on them. I still can't do that. I can say somebody was oppressed. Somebody has been murdered wrongly. I can accept all of that. I can punish the murderers, but I can still not call the Qadiani Muslim. I can't do it. Because they believe in a religion that is other than Islam. 
Let me explain to you another way. If I call a Qadiani a Muslim, then that means I am saying that what Qadianis believe equals Islam. If you call right, if you call Barack Obama a Christian, then you're saying that what Barack Obama believes falls within Christianity. Right? I can't do that. For any Qadiani on earth I can't do that. Because they believe things that cannot let them be a Muslim. Now do you understand? Right? What is that belief? They believe in another prophet. Just because somebody has certain things common in you, does that entitle them to be called a Muslim? No. Right? Why can't they call their house of worship a masjid? The same reason why under American law I cannot call myself a church. I would not be allowed in America to open up a masjid where people are taught Quran and Hadith and Deen of Islam and I could not put up a board and say Catholic Church of Kamaluddin, New York. They won't let me do that. I'll say, no, but it's my freedom. They say, no, it's fraud. They say, there's something called fraud. There's something called freedom. You cannot engage in fraud. They say, you're welcome to open up your religious house of worship. We will give you all of the tax exempt status. But you can't call yourself the Catholic Church. The Catholics are calling us day and night and saying, this Kamaluddin guy is calling himself Catholic. Right? And he doesn't have the freedom to call himself a Catholic officially because that's a fraud. So if I say, why? They say, because Catholics don't believe that Muhammad is a prophet and you do. So you can never call yourself a Catholic. You won't be allowed in America. I say, no, I want to get membership in the you know, Catholic Churches of America Union and they're not giving me membership. I want to sue them for discrimination. The judge will say, no, you will lose that court case. They're not discriminating. You can never be given admission into Catholic Churches of America. I say, no, but I believe in Isa Islam. I believe. We have so many things in common. I believe in Jerusalem. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Mary. They say, no, but look, you believe in Muhammad <laughs> Hence, you can never be a Catholic. You can never be given membership. That's how America works. Because fraud is not allowed. You cannot engage in fraud. A Qadiani cannot call themselves a Muslim because it's fraud. It has nothing to do with tolerism, toleration, human rights, violence. We're not talking about any of that. We're just talking about fraud versus honesty. A person who believes in another prophet is denying this verse of these verses of Quran, where Allah Ta'ala said the Prophet is sufficient for all of humanity. Right? So a Qadiani is a non-Muslim. And that is as follows. They should not be allowed to call themselves Muslim. That should be done by law, not by force. Rule of law should be applied. You cannot call your place of worship a masjid. You cannot call what you say adhan. You cannot call what you pray salah. You cannot call yourself a Muslim. You are not a sect of Muslims. You are non-Muslims. Right? My not accepting them as Muslim again. I can live with them peacefully in Pakistan. I can live with them many non-Muslim minorities. No problem. I will treat them the way I treat any atheist, any Buddhist, any Christian, any Jew... I'm perfectly fine. We can be fellow citizens of Pakistan. As long as the law makes one law that they're not allowed to call themselves Muslim. Don't let them engage in fraud. No Hindu is allowed to call himself a Muslim. No Buddhist Christ to call himself a Muslim. Every other non-Muslim respects this. We want you to call, make your own religion. Fine. No problem. Right? Have your own religion. Believe in your own prophet. There are plenty of religions and prophets that people believe in the world. We don't have, Muslims don't have any illusion that we can change that reality. Right? So, ulama have one mutalaba that it should be made legal. 
You see, when you legalize something, that's also a way that you make sure no violence and force is used. It should simply be illegal for a Qadiani to call themselves a Muslim. In fact, you should list Qadianis as a minority. You should give them all the rights that minorities are given in Pakistan constitution. You can give them seats in parliament that are assigned from I'm for all of that. Treat them like a minority. And let's live in mutual respect, peaceful coexistence, but with honesty, without the fraud. The Jews, when they were expelled from Spain, where did they come? They came to us in the Ottoman Empire. We treated them brilliantly. We can treat Qadianis as brilliantly in Pakistan as we treated the Jews in the Ottoman Empire as long as they called themselves Qadiani. If those Jews, when they're expelled from saying, they said, no, we're Muslim, and I see we're the real Muslims, and all of you are unbelievers, I don't think they would have gotten such good treatment in the Ottoman Empire if they came with that philosophy, right? So, alhamdulillah, Islamic history has shown non-Muslim atheist historians, Jewish historians, right, that other than the contemporary state of Israel, the Jews have never had it better other than under the Muslim rule in Spain and then the Muslim rule in the Ottoman Empire. And we could do the same for the Qadianis today. They just cannot call themselves Muslim. You can't accept that. Because again, if you accept that, but you're saying they're Muslim, that means you're saying that's Islam. Islam means to believe in another prophet. You cannot say that. You cannot, you cannot accept that. I'll give you another example. If somebody came up with another sect and said, we don't believe in any new prophet. We believe in everything in Quran and everything in Hadith, but we don't believe that Musa was a prophet. I say, you're not Muslim. To them I will also say, you say to me, no, they do everything the same, they believe in the Prophet they don't believe in any new prophet, their salah is the same, psalm is the same, zakat is the same, Muslim. I say, but if they're saying that they don't believe Musa is a prophet, they're not Muslim. Which prophets you believe in and don't believe in, that defines religion, that's borders of a religion. A Christian is a non-Jew, why? Because he believes in additional prophet. A Jew will not allow a Christian to call themselves a Jew. If a Christian says, I want to be a Jew, the Jew will say, do you believe in Jesus? The Christian will say, yes. The Jew will say, you're a non-Jew. You believe in another prophet. Your belief in another prophet means you cannot be called a Jew. So the same thing between us and the Qadiyani. You believe in another prophet, you cannot be called a Muslim. Another thing, marriage to Qadiyani is absolutely haram. 100% haram. You've seen, you've been sitting with me some of your days, I don't make proclamations, right? I haven't been giving you guys fatwas. Marriage with a man or woman, it doesn't make a difference. Marrying a Qadian is absolutely haram. You want to love somebody who thinks your Nabi was incomplete and you needed another Nabi to complete him. Last thing to tell you, what is, should be our attitude towards Qadianis? So I spoke about a law, I spoke about in a state mutual peaceful coexistence. Right? What is my personal attitude to Kalyanis? You're going to be stunned when I say this. We love Kalyanis. Because we, Kalyanis, who are Kalyanis? Kalyanis are Muslims. They're historically Muslims who were frauded by this guy Mirza Ghulam. If you had a friend who came to the right? Then you would want that I could bring him back. That's my attitude I think they're. Nice people whose great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather got fooled and we need to get them out of that. So our mission and message to them is one of love and compassion. Thank you.
کوئی ایسی بات ہی نہیں ہے وہ آپ اپنے میں سے ہیں نائنٹی نائن پرسینٹ آف کالیان فارمر مسلمس اور You know, you have to be clear about your values, you have to be clear about your deen, and this is a matter between you and your Prophet ﷺ. That's why Allah Ta'ala may be anticipating this. That's why in the same surah he put that, An-Nabiyu Awla. Nabiya Qadim takes precedence, he has priority. He is Awla or us over than our own selves. He means more to us than the world, yes. That means there are many people who deny and we're not violent to them. There's so many people who don't believe in the Prophet We have no problem with them. Right? As long as they don't say that that is Islam. Our Prophet some he brought Islam. Nobody can add to it. There's so many other ways you can think. Right? Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Kalyani was not there on the Isra. He wasn't part of the Anbiya who were there. His name is not mentioned in Adhan. His name is not mentioned in Quran. There's so many aspects to it that if there had been another Prophet, if Allah Ta'ala was planning to send another Prophet, don't you think that would be there somewhere in the Quran? Don't you think our Prophet would have told us that? Right? That there would be another Prophet? Don't you think there would be something in there? Right? And this is something that everyone in the world agrees on. Yes, all Indonesians, all Malaysians, all the literate, educated, enlightened Indonesians, Malaysians, Jordanians, Moroccans, every Muslim in the world says it, it, it can say in a flash of an eye that Qadian is a non-Muslim. They say it's open and shut case. Anybody who isn't a prophet is can no longer be Muslim. Right? Accept them as fellow citizens. Accept them as former Muslims. Accept them as people you have to try to bring back to the deen to make them leave that dukkah. That, they, that their forefathers fell into, but you can't accept them as they are as Muslims. Alright? So this is a very important thing, uh, and the reason we speak about it so much is because we are doing this course in Pakistan, and in India, Pakistan is from where this fitna has arisen. So it's, I feel, it's the duty of the ulama of India and Pakistan, since the fitna arose from within us, it's our duty to speak about it, whereas perhaps other communities may not feel such a grave responsibility. Alright? So we'll have to stop on this note, which is not the nicest note to stop on, right? So I'll just recite one ayah and translate it for you so we don't stop on this note. So verse 41 is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is a whole passage which we ourselves have given a lecture on to you several times. Ya ayyuhalladzina amanuzkurullaha dhikran kathira That oh you have iman, you must make dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abundantly. Wasabbihuhu bukratun wa asila And you must glorify him mornings and evenings. Huwalladhi yusalli alaykum For Allah ta'ala is that being he sends salawat upon you. Wa malaikatuhu And his angels send salawat upon you. Liyukhrijukum min al-zulamati ila nur So that they can, Allah ta'ala can take you out from the darkness of your sin and oppression into the Nur of Iman, Bakanabil Mu'minina Rahima, and Allah Spanta is ever and always merciful on his believers. Tahiyatuhum Yoma Yalkona Hu Salam and the greeting that they will have on that day 
on which they will meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be salam, a greeting of peace from Him. ajran karima, And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is prepared for those believers of His who remember Him abundantly. And ajr kareem, a tremendously generous reward, an everlasting, unending reward. So this ayah is about the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which I told you we would do, and I will explain it more in detail, inshallah, tomorrow. But here it's very clear that every person of Iman, because Allah Ta'ala is addressing, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu, and all of us are, that's the basic level in Quran. So every one of us is, Alladina amanu, Allah Ta'ala is commanding us that we should remember Him. Remember Him all the time, remember Him always, remember Him in our mind, have thoughts of Him in our mind, have feelings for Him in our heart, remember Him that He should be the basis of everything that we say and we do and we think and we feel and the basis of all our decisions. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that being that He sends salawat upon us. And His angels send salawat upon us. Now you, many people may not have known this ayah. As somebody of Allah dina amanu, if you do the zikr of Allah, what happens? This ayah is elsewhere in the Quran about the Prophet nabi. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the angels send salawat on the Prophet. Here Allah ta'ala is saying in the Quran to those Allah dina amanu, if they do zikr, Allah ta'ala will send salawat on them. And all of the angels, malaika means all of the angels will send salawat on you. Salawat means blessings and grace. So it means this kalam, this heart that you have in your breast, it could receive the salawat from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the salawat from angel Jibreel, the salawat from the angels who tawaf around the arsh, the salawat from all of the angels when you do the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's a large part because we have left Allah ta'ala's zikr that we left, we don't feel barakah in our life. We don't get these salawat. Our heart isn't getting these mercies and blessings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the angels because we're not people of zikr. And this is why in the classical Muslim period, almost all the Muslimin were zakirin. This is what we just did from Quran. With zakirin Allah, kathirun with zakirat. It's a sifat, it's an attribute of the believers that they always remember Allah. So we need to make a space for our, in our life for the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We need to remember Him inside our ibadah, outside of our ibadah, at all times because we need these blessings and mercies. And that person, when their heart has the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, their heart is connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then a lot of the things that seem difficult in life, they become easy. A lot of the hardships, they're able to bear them. A lot of the betrayals, are able to withstand them. Then they will find more itminan in this life. Like Allah Ta'ala said in Quran, Allah bi dhikrillahi tatma'inul qulub, that only and only in the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do the spiritual hearts find itminan. Wa akhirun da'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Subhanahu rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli ala sinuna Muhammad wa ala ala sinuna Muhammad wa barik wa sallim. Rabbana dhanamna anfusana wa illam takfillana wa tarhamna lanakuna namina khasirin. Ya Allah, Ya Nabi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask that you accept our Qur'an, accept our Salah, accept our Du'as, accept our fast. Ya Allah, we ask that you bestow upon us all of the sifat and characteristics of the Mu'mineen and Mu'minat. Ya Allah, make us true Mu'mineen. Ya Allah, save us from all of the false ideologies of today. Save us from the fitna and fasad of today. Ya Allah, let us come to you in peace. Let our hearts be at peace. Ya Allah, let us peacefully follow this deen. Ya Allah, we want to come to you penitently. 
devoutly, devotedly, loyally, sincerely, lovingly, passionately. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you ignite our hearts with your love for you. Fill our hearts with the fear for you. Endow our hearts with the remembrance for you. Ya Rabbi, we want that by the end of this month of Ramadan, we become so connected to you, so attached to you, so close to you, that there is nothing that can take us away, nothing that can make us forget. Ya Allah, we ask that you protect us from all of the arguments and disputations that are unproductive, that are unbeneficial. Ya Allah, we ask that you simply enable us to follow haq as it is and that come to you on the path of your Qur'an, of the sunnah of your Nabi Kareem, to come to you on the path of Sirat al-Mustaqeem, the path of your Siddiqeen and Salihin. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Ya Allah, let us be true in our deen, sincere in our deen, true in our amal, sincere in our amal, true in our ilm, sincere in our ilm. Ya Allah, grant us that knowledge which is nur, that grant us that knowledge that leads to amal, grant us that amal which is nur, grant us that amal which is makbul. Ya Allah, we want that you should be pleased with us, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, all of these fasts and prayers, everything that we're trying to do is only so that we can become pleasing to you, Ya Allah. Ya Rabbi Kareem, razi huja. Ham se razi huja. Ya Rabbi Kareem, apne raza ke mutabik hameh bana. Hameh wohi ada nasib farman jis se aap razi hai. Wohi andaz ta farman jis se tu razi hai. Ya Rabbi Kareem, hamare sar ke baalon se lekar paon ke nakhno tak. Hamare zahir baatin man tak. Apne raza ke mutabik bana dijay. Apne yaad nasib farman dijay. Ishq nasib farman dijay. Ya Rabbi Kareem, aap ne Quran mein farmaya. Ye Ramzan ke mena laallakum tattakoon. تقوی والا مینہ ہے یا رب کریم ہم سب کو تقوی والی نعمت سے نواز دیجئے ہمیں متقی بنا دیجئے تک آنکھوں کا تقوی نصیب فرما زبانوں کا تقوی نصیب فرما دل کا تقوی نصیب فرما ظاہر باطن سب کو متقی بنا یا رب کریم ہمیں تقوی کا لطف عطا فرما تقوی کی لذت نصیب فرما تقوی کا چسکہ عطا فرما تقوی کا حرص عطا فرما یا رب کریم ہمیں ہمیشہ تقوی والا پیار کو اختیار کرنا آسان بنا ربنا تکمل منا انکا انت السمیع العلیم وطوب علینا انکا انت التواب الرحیم وصل اللہ تعالی علی حبیبه سیدنا محمد وعلی آلہ وصحبہ اجمعین برحمتک یا ارحم الراحمین